because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. As you might be able to tell from the setting, it's getting to be night here in Southern California. I'm recording this on the evening of March 31st, so last day of March heading into April. And I'm actually curious what kinds of April Fool's jokes people will be having because it's, it's a really tough time in our country's history. And I think almost everyone believes that. I think my perspective is I'm much more concerned about the state of freedom in our country versus the state of a virus in our country, although I am very concerned about the state of the virus, but I am very, 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 very concerned about the state of freedom. On this week's Power Hour, I've got uh, two really interesting interviews, so it's going to be another maybe Power Hour and a half. Uh, the uh, The first interview is with Robert Bryce, who is actually the original guest on Power Hour. He's the author of several really interesting energy books, including Power Hungry, Gusher of Lies, and his latest book, A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. So I'll be asking him some questions about that, and we we end up having a really interesting discussion about, among other things, energy poverty, and how is it, you know, what can be done so that more people around the world have low-cost, reliable energy. And it's not as easy sometimes as people think, but Robert offers some really good guidelines and frameworks for recognizing what is necessary to expand people's ability to use energy, particularly in the poorest parts of the world. After Robert comes on the show, I will be talking with Michael Mazzoni. Now, Michael Mazzoni is a longtime friend of the show. He's a very successful energy lawyer, and he and I will be talking about a seemingly arcane subject, but I think a really relevant one, which we're going to talk about intellectual persuasion and how that has helped him as an energy lawyer. And we'll get into that more at the time, but I'm a very big advocate of intellectual persuasion in that the core way I believe in generating long-term change in audiences is figuring out better and better ways of explaining things in a way that genuinely connects with their minds and that that also connects with their emotions, but that is not trying to manipulate them and trying to bypass their mind. I have a lot of ethical problems with that, and I think a lot of that stuff is unsustainable for various reasons. So we'll be talking about intellectual persuasion and how Michael has actually learned from uh, my this podcast and then my other podcast, The Human Flourishing Project, how he's been able to apply some of those principles and have uh, some really huge successes in his legal career. And I think those the lessons there will be helpful, not just to those of you in energy, but those of you in any field where persuasion is relevant, which is basically every field. So those are our two big guests this week. Uh, no Don and Stefan, by the way, just because uh, I'm, mo- I'm mostly interviewing outside guests. Sometimes they'll be here, sometimes they won't. Uh, so we're going to go into those segments, but first I want to comment on two stories in the news because I, I really on this show, I think it's going to be necessary to comment on the weekly news basically every week because there, it's such a transformative time in the history of our country and some of this connects to energy, but some of this connects to just freedom more broadly. And I want to I wanna say something about it. So just as I would want to say something when I think people were doing very wrong things in response to the stock market crash of 1929, 
just as I would have wanted to participate in debates during the Civil War, you know, where people were advocating things that we now regard as reprehensible. So I want to participate in this discussion about what does, you know, what is the future of American freedom, including how does freedom relate to the current uh, pandemic involving the new or novel coronavirus, aka COVID-19. So as you know, so that's one story I'm going to talk about, and then I'll more briefly talk about a story where BP, uh, formerly British Petroleum, now sometimes likes to call itself Beyond Petroleum, or at least just BP, has announced that they are going to be 100% carbon neutral by the year 2050. So I'll talk about that a little bit, but I mainly want to focus on COVID-19. And in particular, the big, at least one of the big news developments is that President Trump held a, con a press conference on Sunday and he talked about how he wants to extend what he would call social distancing guidelines, but really you can think of this as the, the indefinite universal lockdown, saying that the universal lockdown should be extended until the end of April. But then, and there were some models invoked in saying, well, we're already, per, there were going to be 2 million people who died, and now it's going to be maybe 200,000 or maybe less. So we're saving literally millions of lives doing this. Uh, you know, this is, this is the claim that's being made. I, I do not think this claim is actually a defensible claim. But then part of that is, yeah, we were relying on these models. And then, so end of April, but then one of the leading people of the models said, no, actually end of May. So we are still in this state of, indefinite universal lockdown. And there's a, it's a tricky issue to talk about because we really, really, really don't want more people than necessary to die of what can be a horrific disease. It's not the only horrific disease, but it's the one that's captured our attention and has certain really scary properties, including how contagious it is. So I just want to put the proper weight on that. And then we see in particular locations, particularly in the United States, in New York City, we're seeing at least some cases of hospitals being overwhelmed. And that's really not a good thing. And we do not want that to happen throughout the country for uh, all kinds of reasons. So there's, there's every reason to want to take intelligent action to fight this virus. But in the context of what I would call human flourishing. So we're not, the goal of us and the goal of our government can't be prevent one virus, even a really bad virus at all costs. The whole reason we want to prevent the virus is so that we can live our lives and, and enjoy our lives, what I would call human flourishing. You can think of it as we want a high quality of life. So I think we need to think, and last, last week I talked about a path forward, which I, I call Don't Stop Living, Live Smarter. And I still want to be focused on that idea this week. But this week in particular, I thought it might be helpful to give you six filters that I use when I'm looking at different kinds of stories about COVID-19. And the reason these filters I think are particularly useful is because they're pretty hard to argue with and yet they're violated all the time. And so what they can do is they can help you find some of the better experts and the better policymakers on this issue. And there are some who seem to be quite good. And there's one in particular that I will recommend as somebody I've found particularly insightful 
uh, lately, at least with my, my current judgment. And I'm obviously not an expert on this particular virus. In a sense, nobody is an expert fully on this particular virus and all the different aspects of dealing with it. But I do have a lot of expertise on thinking methods and I can spot bad thinking methods. And I think there's some really obvious bad thinking methods. And I talked about some of them last week on the show, but here are six filters that I use that I think if you, you use them, it'll help you, it'll help you filter out most of what's going on in terms of prediction and policy as really bad and then help you find some of the better thinkers, including some of the better specialists who have a lot of this specialized knowledge that I don't have and that you probably don't have. So it's really valuable to have these kinds of filters. So I'll just go through them quickly since we have a lot of other content to get to, but I think they'll be useful. And I'll, I'll put these filters each in terms of a question. And so they'll be, each question will begin with, do they? And if you, just so when you're, when you're reading somebody, and this can be President Trump, it can be uh, Dr. Fauci, it can be someone on CNN, doesn't matter, politics, what status, you can apply these filters. So filter number one is, do they assume that freedom of action means recklessness? Do they assume that freedom of action means recklessness? You see this all the time where people say, oh, well, if the government doesn't do something, then we're going to have all these deaths. And there's a whole bunch of aspects uh, to that, I think, that are wrong assumptions behind these deaths, even if people were reckless. But there's no doubt that people being reckless will lead to a lot more deaths than people not being reckless, almost by definition. And yet there's this idea that unless we lock people down, then they will be reckless. And that is an assumption that should really be questioned because there's every reason to think that given the proper information, many, many, many of us will act very intelligently and that we'll discover all sorts of best practices that lead to much better outcomes, even just with respect to a virus, than this universal lockdown. And this leads to filter number two, which is, do they assume that a lockdown means optimal virus protection? There's this idea that, oh, well, if we lock people down, that's the best way to keep ourselves safe. And they're just some sort of intuitive things where that's obviously not true. Like if you're locking down elderly, vulnerable people with younger people and the thing is asymptomatic, then you could be you could be deliberately infecting people and you could be infecting them under some of the conditions that many, uh, you know, many of the worst outbreaks have occurred under in terms of enclosed spaces. So that's just one of many things where it's not at all the optimal thing just to lock people down. And so when they assume that this is, this is some sort of optimal virus prevention thing, there's something really suspicious with the way they're thinking. Filter number three, do they advocate universal measures for the highly vulnerable and the low vulnerability alike? Do they advocate universal measures for the highly vulnerable and low vulnerability uh, alike? And I've stressed this pretty much every time I've spoken out about this and because it's obvious, but nobody is talking about it. If you look at these lockdowns, you look at these orders, you look at most of these models, they're continually conflating high vulnerability people with low vulnerability people. And it makes absolutely no sense because both the biggest risk death-wise and hospital overload-wise is people in very definable vulnerable categories. There's some debate about to what extent young people are at risk, and I think that's almost all going to turn out to be in people who are very compromised in terms of their immune system. That's why I lumped them under vulnerable. But if you take, say, 
healthy people, really healthy people under 50, that's just a totally different universe than say people over 80 or people with serious immune issues. So anybody who's making prescriptions and not making those differences is not a serious thinker. And there's some sort of moral thing, and I believe corrupt moral thing, justifying that versus it making any kind of logical sense. So that's if they, if do they advocate universal measures for the highly vulnerable and low vulnerability like I filter them out as a legitimate thinker on this issue. Uh, the fourth one is, do they equate diagnosed infections with actual infections? Do they equate diagnosed infections with actual infections? It is so outrageous what happens. And this, this, this goes to this statistic of the death rate. So the death rate is, means the, the real death rate of something is how many people die over how many people have it. So how many people die, end up dying, over how many people are actually infected. And yet the way the death rate is usually calculated in all sorts of prestigious sources is it's measured by how many people die over how many people are diagnosed uh, infected. And yet one of the whole attributes of COVID-19 is it is super contagious in part because it is asymptomatic or invisible in a huge number of cases. And part of what we don't have really good knowledge of is how often it goes undetected. But there's really credible evidence that it's at least a 10 to one ratio and that there are 10 asymptomatic unreported actual infections for every diagnosed infection. And so if you say something like, oh, well, I there's a 2% death rate, but you're you're off by a factor of 10, then that's 0.2%. That's twice the flu. But if you're off by a factor of 100, and there's evidence that some of these things are off by a factor of 100, then it would be something that's less deadly overall than the flu. It could be more deadly for specific people, but it might be less deadly on average. We really don't know. But nobody who's at all serious can just use these phony death rate statistics and calculate the death rate as the number of deaths over the diagnosed infections. And this is just being spread all over the place. It's the basis of models and it just has to stop. So if, if you see somebody who is making these distinctions, it, then that is a good sign. And if they're not making these distinctions, that is a bad sign. And with, with all four of these things, somebody who, who I'm seeing consistently is not doing this is a guy named uh, David Katz at Yale. And I don't know him at all. And I, I haven't seen him on other issues. But on this issue, he's written a couple of several things. I've looked at his LinkedIn page. And if you just search David Katz on Google, he has some really good stuff. And one of the most prominent things on his webpage is a public policy set of pub, public policy recommendations that recommends distinguishing among people by vulnerability. He gives different recommendations for people healthy under 60 versus people who are over 75. And that makes so much sense. And the fact that it's not being done, there, none of these lockdowns are saying anything specific about, oh, well, it should be a different policy for older people or younger people. Not that I think you should necessarily have a lockdown for anyone, but if you're having a lockdown for anyone, it should definitely be the vulnerable people because the biggest, the biggest concerns are A, the threat of their health, but even more, the biggest concern is the overload of the hospital system. So this is, a, and I found David Katz very helpful on this, and he's very clear about this point about the death rate and about we need better information about actual infections, and he's a big champion of collecting data 
from different places so that we can, you know, what we would call randomized data. So just sampling a whole population, not just the people who come into the hospital for COVID-19, but everybody, including people who think there's nothing wrong with them or they just, just have a little cold, figure out what percentage of people in the country, or at least get a decent guess, what percentage of people in the country have it, because that's going to totally change your death rate. It's going to tell you how close is this to the flu versus how, you know, how much of this is a difference in kind that really requires a different response. And I can't say one way or the other right now definitively, but I, I can say that the people with the lower estimates of the danger are the people who seem to be taking the actual infection rate seriously and seem to want to study it versus the other people seem to just love dividing the number of deaths by the number of diagnosed cases in a world where we have a massive testing shortage and where we are overwhelmingly diagnosing people who are self-reporting as highly, highly symptomatic. Filter number five, do they devalue freedom and quality of life? Do they devalue freedom and quality of life? A good friend of mine was observing the other day, said, you know, when people are talking about this issue, they have this, this issue of they're talking about the lives saved versus the economy. And he said that, and, and I agree with this, that is a really false alternative because one of the things that the economy just means individuals' productive activities. And the fundamental thing they do is they sustain lives, including they provide all these amazing medical cures that would not exist had we been living in a state of universal lockdown for a long time in the past. So there's this, it's wrong to think about, oh, well, saving lives versus the economy. But my friend in particular noted that there's almost no discussion of freedom as having any value. And that's wrong, I think, in many ways. I think the, the actually, in a sense, freedom should be the only value that we are talking about because freedom is the means by which we flourish. It allows us to uh, create and pursue the values we need to flourish, including rational decisions about virus protection, including things like cures to viruses that need to be produced with human ingenuity. So I do, you know, my ultimate perspective is we should just be thinking in terms of freedom and the government should only intervene if it can really prove that there's a, a contagion of the level where it is interfering with everybody's freedom, much as if we're invaded by a foreign country, that's a threat to everybody's freedom. So you have the temporary right to restrict activity in order to get rid of that violation of rights. But you have to think of it as the goal here is not to, quote, save lives as if it's the government's job to decide how long people live or how long they should live or should they, you know, pursue their happiness and live a year shorter or should they just exist on a ventilator uh, for an extra year because the government wants to, quote, save lives. That, that's not the government's job at all. The government's job is to protect our freedom. And there's a question of are there, are there and when are there exceptional circumstances where this is truly getting in the way of our freedom uh, in a universal way where the government needs to act. And, and part of that is the government needs really, really clear standards of evidence to do that. And it does not qualify in my mind at all as a standard of evidence to say, well, we're going to hyperinflate the death rate and then we're going to plug it into some models and we're going to assume that human beings left to their own devices are stupid and we'll just keep spreading this and contracting this and filling up hospitals no matter what happens. And so we'll keep what's called the R constant throughout this and then it'll be exponential and then 10 million people will die. Like that is not, that does not in my mind qualify at all uh, as something that 
that could justify, you know, serious government intervention into our fr freedom. And if they say they don't have evidence or they don't have enough evidence yet, then I think what you have to say is, here's what we think. We recommend that you do this voluntarily, but I don't think you can shut down people's lives because you say, well, we don't really know uh, the state of this. So I'm rambling a little bit about that, or hopefully not rambling, but just going on to that topic of what I think the standard should ultimately be, which is the whole thing should be, how does the government protect freedom? But even if you don't have it as, as consistently or as that as your ultimate standard politically, the way that I do, if people are talking about mass restrictions on, on individuals' ability to interact, which is an essential both of our productive ability, but also our ability to enjoy life, if they talk about the cavalier restriction of the freedom to interact in an indefinite way, if, if that is not treated as grave and even as a catastrophe, then this person does not care about human life. Even if they, they can say, well, look, I think this virus is so bad that it, we need to temporarily suspend those things and it should really be temporarily. So I'm not saying it, whatever your evaluation of the virus, it should be the most solemn thing and an upsetting thing of what has been done to people's lives. And, and I just feel like it's so upsetting because nobody, they're just all of these lives being ruined. And I mean ruined in the sense of, or a better word is destroyed. People have built their lives. They've made plans. They've built restaurants. They've created uh, events. And all of those have just been, been substantially destroyed. And people act like, oh, it's no big deal. And oh, just, just do that, save lives, and without even much of a clear justification. Yeah, we're not even really sure uh, what the evidence is, but here's an extreme catastrophe model. And so, yeah, that's, that's perfectly sufficient to shut down your life indefinitely. With that kind of attitude, that is, there's something deeply, deeply wrong morally, and I would say psychologically, with that kind of mentality. So that's a filter that I use. Again, I'm totally open to somebody who says, look, I think the virus is this bad. And so we have to do, we have to pay this huge cost to fight it. I'm very doubtful of that given the evidence we have right now, but that at least makes sense. But if they do not care what is happening to the life of really now billions of people around the world and that they're substantially being destroyed in ways that will, will compromise and hurt people's quality of life for years and years on end. And in some cases, the rest of people's lives will be negatively affected by this. If they don't care about that and they just care about, oh, well, all that matters is extending the life, is, is delaying the death of already really sick people for three months, then I, I submit they're not concerned with life. It's more like they view life as, as living death. And that's pretty harsh assessment, but see if you can come up with an argument uh, against it. So this, this filter of do they devalue freedom and quality of life, that's a really big one for me. And then finally, do they treat the goal as eradicating COVID-19 instead of managing COVID-19? It's really important that we be clear on our goal at all times. And I think ultimately the goal has to be protect people's freedom so that they can flourish. That, that, that I see as the ultimate goal, the political goal, which enables the moral goal. So the political goal of protecting freedom which enables the moral goal of being able to flourish, including being able to produce and including being able, being able to uh, interact. Um, 
But within that, if you're talking about a virus, there is this question of, okay, are we trying to get rid of this? Are we trying to rid this from the earth? Is that the goal of our efforts? Is that how we're going to measure success? Or are we trying to manage it? Are we trying to make it more like the flu? If it's much more extreme than the flu in terms of its, its actual death rate, are we trying to manage it so that it becomes much less deadly? I think that's a, a noble goal. And if eradication was really possible, I think that would be a great goal. But what we've heard over and over and over from the experts, and I haven't heard much contradiction to this at all, is that this, it's like the flu. It's not something we can eradicate. It's something that we can manage. And yet the government is treating this, it's saying, well, we want to win. We want to defeat this. And there's way too much of a conflation between eradication and management. You can say, okay, well, I want, I want the rate of it to go down. Or I want it to go, but, but even there, you have to be really careful because the ways that people are saying, well, I want the number of cases to go down by this date. But if you're saying it's inevitable that 50% of the population is going to get it, then it might not make sense for cases to go down that much. And that if if you if you're holding this false goal of eradication you're using that as your standard then you're going to compromise every other goal in service of this irrational goal so right now the evidence that i see people who are talking about management i respect people who are talking about eradication i don't respect unless they have some fantastic argument as to how that's possible then i'm definitely open to it but in particular, where people, where people do not distinguish between eradication and management, they jump back and forth, that is, that is a recipe for disaster. And it's not just a recipe for disaster, but disaster is being cooked right now. I think we're, we're taught to think in terms of disaster as, as X number of people get this virus, but we're already having it be, yeah, hundreds of millions of people are having their lives deeply, deeply damaged. That, to me is is a disaster going into another great depression which is a real possibility that is a disaster and even if it didn't decrease life expectancy and it probably would but even if it didn't decrease life expectancy but it just made people more miserable for 10 years i would regard that as a tragedy and if people don't care about human happiness then they don't really care about human life because the reason we want to be alive is to enjoy ourselves to be fulfilled it's not to just exist for one more month or two more months just to exist as a, you know in a miserable state so those are the six filters i hope that's helpful interested if any of you have any filters that you use as always if you have any ideas you can contact me at alex at alexepstein.com okay second story and this is going to be a quick one BP has agreed to be carbon neutral by 2050. I know a lot of people from the energy industry watch this. Well, now you can watch it because it's on video or listen to this podcast. And my main reaction to this is just do not do what BP is doing. What they're saying is if they are a solvent company by 2050, which is a real question, they are not going to do this. There's no way they're going to do this and not I mean, there's nobody today has any idea how to produce energy in a carbon neutral way. Solar is not produced in any kind of carbon neutral way. Wind isn't in part because so many of the inputs are oil based because oil is the fuel of mobility. So all the mining and transportation is oil based. And then there's the whole parasitism point that solar and wind require nearly 100% backup by a reliable source, which is usually fossil fuels. 
even nuclear, which is fundamentally the lowest carbon in terms of its potential, it's still nowhere near zero carbon right now. So there's not even one technology now that does it. You've been having people claim for decades and decades and decades that they're on the verge of this. Fossil fuels for the last five years have still been the fastest growing source of energy in the world. Uh, nuclear is still being suppressed. And notice that BP is not saying, hey, we're going to be a major innovator in nuclear. That would excite me. No, they're saying, no, we're going to do it with renewables, which effectively means solar and wind. So there is no evidence whatsoever that they can do this and be a viable company. Uh, it's very possible they'll use different kinds of accounting tricks to do this. But what I would just caution everybody who's considering this to do is this is not however many cocktail parties BP gets celebrated at, if they get celebrated at any, or at least they get, they get attacked less by Climate Action 100 or one of these gangs that's really focused on uh, eliminating the fossil fuel industry through investor pressure. Whatever they get there, it cannot make up for being unproductive. Like they're they are committing to an unproductive path going forward. And if you are a company, your number one imperative is be productive, create value in the long-term sense. And what you need to do is figure out how if people are concerned about emissions, you need to you can factor that in, you can explain what you're doing, but fundamentally the focus needs to be on long-term value creation. And eliminating fossil fuels from the world in the next 30 years is not consistent with long-term value creation. And if, if your company is going to be some master of some non-fossil fuel technology, great, but that's not most of your expertise. And we really need companies with expertise in fossil fuels over the coming decades. As, as we'll discuss in the Robert Bryce segment, the world needs a lot more energy, not less. He focuses on electricity, which is a lot of it, but all forms of energy, including heavy-duty transportation industry, where oil is king and will likely be king indefinitely until and unless we decriminalize nuclear and over some number of decades, just like they power aircraft carriers, they can be used to power ultimately smaller vehicles. But this commitment to carbon neutrality and specifically through renewables, do not do this. And we should not admire BP for this. They're, they're, they're selling the world on the idea that fossil fuels are not necessary for the future. They are affirming not just climate impact or climate change, they are affirming climate catastrophism, which is not a substantiated view because as I've pointed out many times, we are safer than ever from climate related deaths. So, and despite decades and decades and decades of predictions that climate mortality will dramatically increase, it's dramatically decreased. Probably many of you have heard the show before, have heard me talk about this many times, but in general, fossil fuels are make whatever their defects, and there are some, they are overall making the world a better and better place to live. They're the only source of energy that in the near future can provide low cost, reliable energy for billions of people in thousands of places around the world for all of the different purposes that we need energy for. And because of that, they are crucial and their benefits far, far outweigh their side effects. If you're interested, if you're a company and you're interested in how do we position ourselves in this era of investor pressure, I've talked about my approach and my company's approach to this ESG issue, which these, these, sustainabilities, these sustainability issues are often uh, lumped under. And I refer you to the ESG chess game episode I did. And 
we'll link to that. And also we will link to a transcript of it. And then also I have a mini white paper called the ESG dilemma. And if you're in the industry, if you're in an industry where you're actively dealing with ESG, it's not a public paper yet, but if you're in the industry dealing with ESG, just email me subject white paper and I will be happy to send it to you. But short version, in any way, commit to eliminating fossil fuels in the next several decades. That's an anti-human commitment and it's an anti-productivity commitment and nothing you get short term in terms of investor or the approval of certain investors will make up for the destruction that happens or the fraud you have to commit to pretending it's going to happen. That's another element where if you are engaging in any kind of energy accounting fraud, which is rampant right now, I've pointed it out with Apple, with Facebook, with others claiming 100% renewable. If you are engaging in that, you are really vulnerable to a class action lawsuit with people saying, hey, what? guess what? You're not 100% renewable. And get, you know what? I would be happy to help the people making that class action lawsuit because there really is a huge amount of fraud over that. So do not, do not make the truth your enemy. Do not commit to getting off fossil fuels. Commit to creating long-term value, including, in most cases, to improving fossil fuels. But that's different than getting off fossil fuels. Okay, those are my two news stories for the week. Next up, we have Robert Bryce. Robert is the author of A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. He did not do a video this week. We did audio, so which seems so passe, even though as of two weeks ago, we only did audio. So Robert and I, you won't, uh, you'll just, you can see this in YouTube, but it's just going to be, you know, a background with a, a moving uh, sound indicator. And then we will be back after that with Michael Mazzoni. All right. We are joined once again by the first ever Power Hour guest, back from, I think, January, early 2011, Robert Bryce. Robert Bryce, welcome back to Power Hour. Wow, Alex, nine years ago? Man, it seems almost, well, it is hard to believe. It seems a lifetime or two ago. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, when I started this show, I had an ally that we mutually know named Robert Bradley Jr., still yeah. still an ally. And, and I said, you know, the number one guy I want is Robert Bryce. I don't think he'll come on the show, but he said, oh, I'll introduce you. And then you agreed to come on the show. And that was my, my first introduction to the idea that people would actually come on my show. I was happy to do it. Happy to do it again now, nine years later. All right. So we're talking about your new book and let's jump in with what's the title of the book and why is it? Why did you pick that title? Sure. Uh, the title is A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. Um, so a little bit of a, a ripoff of Adam Smith, maybe. Um, uh, to be honest, I went back and forth with the publisher over the title and what we were going to. Oh, yeah, I forgot you know, about this. Actually, what when I asked we were going to call it. But, but uh, you know, to his credit, Clive Priddle is the publisher at Public Affairs, and he came up with the title. And I think it's great. I think it really is uh, a, a fitting uh, uh, description of what the book is about, because that's my thesis, that electricity is the world's most important and fastest growing form of energy. And the countries that have electricity that is cheap, abundant, and reliable are the ones that are rich and the ones that are prospering and the ones who are struggling with blackouts, uh, expensive electricity, dirty electricity. They are in the dark and they are uh, poor. And, and just kind of, uh, it's not 
it, across the board and everywhere you look around the world where uh, electric grids are in trouble, where blackouts are common, uh, societies are in, in either chaos or they simply aren't prospering. So, of course, you know, you've written a bunch about electricity and energy more broadly in the past. But I, you know, in, in I've, I've only read part of this book so far, but I've, I've actually gotten the chance to watch Juice, the, uh, the, the documentary. And so I, I got to see some of the research firsthand that uh, that inspired or at least informed this book. And it, it seems like you're even more enthusiastic now about electricity. And one one thing that you emphasized in the movie and in the book is how electricity is particularly valuable in liberating women. So I'd, I'd like you to expand on that. Sure. Um, this isn't necessarily one of the things that started me on the process of writing the book. I mean, just as a brief interlude, the uh, four years ago or so, I saw a clip in the New York Times about uh, the struggles in Nigeria with the electric grid. And it reminded me that I had seen a piece on 60 Minutes in the 70s, if memory serves, where Morley Safer was in Lagos and <clears throat> kind of doing a smirking analysis of Nigeria and pointing out that they had a bunch of lead acid car batteries that were backing up their electric grid. And it just struck me that in 40 years, maybe that Nigeria hadn't made any progress in improving its electric grid. And it made me look at it more closely and think, well, why is this? Why are some countries able to have abundant and reliable electricity and others don't? And and so in, in the process of working through that and understanding what that was, I um, quickly realized, well, this is the critical commodity. Electricity is the critical commodity for women and girls. Why? It liberates them from the pump, the stove, and the wash tub. If women and girls are hauling water by hand, if they're washing clothes by hand, if they're having to go out and collect wood or dung uh, or, or wheat straw or rice straw to, to cook dinner, the, every hour or minute that they're doing that is time that they're not in school. They're not reading. They're not writing. They're not at the computer. They're not seeking work outside the home. So the, 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 there are many, many studies that show how electrification helps women um, and I talk about those in the book. I also talk about the fact that some of the motivation for the New Dealers in the 1930s who pushed for rural electrification, including George Norris, the, the, the senator from Nebraska, they were concerned about farm women and they wanted to get them out of washing clothes by hand um, and, and hauling water by hand. So the history and the understanding of the criticality of electricity to women is, is very clear and it really has fundamentally changed American the American uh, uh, economy, and particularly uh, led to uh, uh, higher social status for women. One, excuse me. One thing I I think about in this connection is you know part of the the kind of key idea in opposition to fossil fuels is well, fossil fuels are making the world increasingly unlivable. And I think this example with women shows the opposite. The world is actually, from our perspective, from our modern perspective, naturally almost unlivable in the sense that the natural state of affairs is one in which your environment is not giving you the sustenance and the protection that, that you need, and so you need to produce it. But because you have no machine power, then you are spending all of your time in drudgery producing your sustenance and your protection. And then you just look at, I think you have some, there's a great photo in the book uh, about the, what's the little guy's name? It begins with an R, I think, like the electricity uh, oh, ready um, kill, like ready mascot. Kill 
Yeah, yeah Ready Kilowatt. And you just see, like, he's showing people, and particularly women, uh, like, here are all the things you can do. And now, oh, wow, a machine can wash your clothes. Right. And a machine can clean your floor. And then you're talking about, you know, a machine, and it's you need the machine to even gather the most primitive form of energy to give you warmth, which is so important. It just strikes me, wow, that a cornerstone of a livable world and a livable life is electricity. And then, of course, it has to be low cost enough where people can actually afford to use it. Exactly. And, and that's that history of ready kilowatt is really uh, uh, fascinating. And in that it was a cartoon character created by um, <clears throat> a guy named Ash Collins, uh, uh, who worked for Alabama Power in the 20s, uh, in the 1920s, and created this cartoon character who then appeared in cartoons and in newsreels and or in, in movie, you know, newsreels and cartoons before uh, in, in movie theaters before the age of television, but it was designed to encourage increased electricity use and it was aimed directly at women. And he would, you know, is this cartoon character? I wash and dry your clothes, play your radios. I can heat your coffee pot. I am always there with lots of power to spare because I'm ready. Kilowatt. Well, th- this, this, this campaign went on for decades and, and it was very effective, but it is, uh, one of those artifacts of history that, points to the essentiality of electricity and how that that prosperity and increased electricity use go hand in hand and that not only prosperity turbocharges electricity use but electricity also facilitates prosperity yeah just just occurred to me as we're we're recording this during the coronavirus or COVID-19 crisis and just thinking of how much we're relying on the ingenuity of everyone. But if you just think about how many ingenious women are involved today in helping us protect ourselves from this, you know, emergency room, uh, you know, emergency room doctors, innovators in pharmaceuticals, and all of that mental labor has been liberated, uh, right. in, you know, in a way that it uh, that it wasn't. And then you look at other societies and they're still in a in a manual labor form, which which leads me to the next issue I want to talk about, which which you have a whole section about, which is the state of electricity uh, around the world. And you have a fact which I've already been using all over the place, but I'll let you say it at least this time. I'm sure I've said it already on this podcast, but your fact about electricity usage in your refrigerator. Sure. And this is one of the, thank you for bringing it up because it's one of the, 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 you know, what is, what, what have I done in my career that, uh, you know, I've, I've written six books this is number six. Um, what I, how I view what I do is I'm a popularizer, right? I try and make the complex simple, give people comparisons that they can understand very quickly. Uh, I'm not the first one to do this. Todd Moss, who was at the center for global development. Now he's, uh, he's the head of an uh, outfit called the energy for growth hub. He did an analysis that used his refrigerator to look at electricity use in Africa. Well, I just stole his idea and used it myself. I got a watt meter. I plugged in my kitchen refrigerator. My kitchen refrigerator, average fridge, I bought it at Home Depot, uses about 1,000 kilowatt hours per year, my refrigerator. Well, then I went and worked with a friend of mine, a colleague of mine here in Austin, Seth Myers, looked at World Bank data, crunched it. We found there are 3.3 billion people today who use less electricity than my refrigerator. There are 3.3 billion people. I call them members. They live in the unplugged world. They live in places where per capita consumption of electricity is less than 1,000 kilowatt hours per year. So, I mean, this is the great inequality in the world today. It's between the electricity rich and the electricity poor. 
and how we bridge that gap, how we deal with it, the fuels that we're going to use to bring more people out of the dark and into the light. I, this is the critical question for the 21st century. Just just in case people like the, the following conversion, I'm a big fan of converting everything to food calories because that's kind of the energy unit we have the most familiarity with. So a kilowatt hour is 860 food calories slash uh, kilocalories. So you're basically talking about 860, you know, Robert's refrigerator is using like 860,000 calories itself a year. And, you know, we, we want people to be able to use way, way more. You know, the average American uses something like 100, you know, we use 100 times as many machine calories as um, as food calories. So um, let's see, a couple of, of things there. So we have three point, where, where is the energy poverty concentrated, or the electricity poverty in particular? Well, if you look at uh, this globally, it's South Asia, uh, India, uh, in India alone, or the average uh, per capita consumption of electricity in India is about 800 kilowatt hours per capita per year. So effectively, all of India on a per capita basis uses less electricity than my refrigerator. All of India is unplugged. There's a billion people right there, 1.2 billion people. All of Pakistan, um, uh, Bangladesh, numerous countries in South Asia, uh, Africa, uh, it, it would, you know, nearly every country in Africa fits in that uh, that three billion uh, uh, people uh, uh, unplugged bucket, I guess. Um, but the other thing, and I think that's important to understand, Alex, and this is one of the things that's really, um, I'm not disheartening, but I think it's a reality check on the this inequality problem, is that how do we how do we solve it? And I'm using now the papal we, the royal we. Well, who's we? I mean, are, can Americans do something about electricity poverty in Pakistan? Well, maybe, I think, but only through ingenuity, only through innovation, only through making electricity cheaper and systems that will make it cheaper. Because those countries where the electricity or where electricity is short generally lack integrity. And that's one of the things I also talk about in the book or what I call the, the power imperatives, uh, integrity, capital and fuel. You, for a grid to work, for an electric grid to function and function well, the the environment the the social in, uh, structures around that grid require integrity capital and fuel and integrity is the most important the system can't leak there has to be trust in the system people who use electricity the people who run the grid they all have to believe the system is legit and if they don't the thing falls apart yeah and this this is one of the big topics i wanted to talk about is these three imperatives but but before we get to those, you also have a classification of, I believe there are three levels of electricity usage. So what, what's your terminology around those? Sure. I, we divided or, or trifurcated the world into, into three buckets, uh, the high watt, low watt, and unplugged worlds. And the high watt world is us, right? We, it's less than 20% of the world's population. We consume in the high watt world, uh, the, the threshold was 4,000 kilowatt hours per capita and above. And I chose the 4,000 uh, uh, kilowatt hour cutoff purposely uh, because of anal an analysis done, I think it was 2001, by a scientist named Alan Pasternak, who worked at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And he did an analysis of, of the global population and used uh, what's called the Human Development Index, which is a, a metric that looks at numerous diff uh, metrics, uh, health, welfare, education levels, uh, um, you know, a number of things that are indicative of of human prosperity, and they put it into one number, which is the Human Development Index, which is one being perfect and zero being, you know, terrible. What 
Pasternak found was that over 4,000 kilowatt, uh, kilowatt hours per capita per year, uh, the, the human development index doesn't increase that much. It's, you know, we've, that's the, that's what, you know, kind of the threshold number. Um, so 4,000 kilowatt hours and above is the high watt world between 4,000 and 1,000 kilowatt hours is the low watt world. And then the, the, the last, of course, which we've already talked about is the unplugged world, which is less than a thousand kilowatt hours. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating that I mean, I that it, it makes sense that, that you know at the very low levels it doesn't make nearly as big a difference. And this this connects to the phenomenon of well, people often talk about access to electricity, and often when people, particularly, they're advocating uh, quote unquote renewable type solutions, they'll they'll often act like any amount of electricity is sufficient. And so as long as somebody can plug in somewhere at some volume, then they are. Uh, electrified, right? And that's, but it's not at all what we mean by no. electrified, which is basically any time we want to power a machine that's relatively stationary, we can plug it into a wall and accomplish magical things. Well, and that's a great point, and it's really a critical one because, yeah, you can charge your cell phone, but if the woman in the household doesn't have a refrigerator or a washing machine, then she's still stuck in what is effectively slave labor. So 100 kilowatt hours, and this is one of the things where it's clear that when you look at some of the policies that are being promoted by the Sierra Club and others that effectively prohibit the want to prohibit the World Bank and other bilateral, multilateral lenders from doing any lending on hydrocarbon projects. So coal-fired power plants in Vietnam, which I've written about, the efforts to block them, and the, in you know a lot of the big environmental groups in America effectively blocked under the Obama administration or, or convinced the Obama administration, oh, no, you shouldn't lend any money on that kind of project. That's hydrocarbons. Those are going to, you know, fossil fuels. Those are going to contribute to climate change. Therefore, no, no, no. Well, how, you know, to use your, you know, your, what you've been talking about now for a decade, how moral is that? I mean, that just seems, you know, we're, oh, we're, it's going to be fine. We're just going to keep them in poverty and they're going to like it. No, they don't like it. And they're not going to stay there willingly. Not if they have any other option. And that was the other key point that I think is essential to understanding electrification. And it's one of the, the things that I found in traveling around the world for this book. People will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. Climate change is not their first priority. Getting the electricity they need to keep themselves safe and comfortable is the critical and, and, and unassailable uh, 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 effort that they're going to make regardless of what anybody else does or says or thinks. Yeah, I find that very heartening that that they have a a human spirit and a and a desire to live because it's you know people call it climate change, but it's basically they're saying yes, there are higher priorities to me than the number of molecules of CO two in the atmosphere. Like I care more about the number of years of my life, you know, the number of hours a day I'm not working manual labor, um, you know, the number of hours my kid can go to school. They're 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 thinking of life in a holistic way, and if they're thinking of CO two levels, it's one part of a whole. Whereas the whole modern dogma is to say the only thing that matters is get CO two levels back to where they were before human beings did anything. So significant. And then that's however we need to do that. Even if billions of people have to suffer and die, it's it's worth doing. And so I'm glad that that people are rebelling against that. Well, and I think it's important as well to just understand as well. And maybe you've seen this, but um, <clears throat> it was just a few weeks ago, the New York Times carried a story about Japan. So let's, you know, let's be clear. This isn't just, you know, people in Puerto Rico after 
you know, Hurricane Maria or, you know, people in Pakistan or, you know, or India or wherever. No, you have the the country of Japan now planning to build uh, 22 new coal fired power plants. And well, why are they doing that? Well, one, because after Fukushima, they shut down effectively all of their nuclear capacity. Um, second, they understand a very densely populated island. They can't possibly depend on renewables to provide the level of uh, the vast amounts of electricity they need yeah. at, at prices That's they funny. can afford. So they're building and have already built just in the last few years, um, a, a half dozen or more new coal fired power plants. Um, and they're doing so because they know if they don't have abundant and reliable electricity, their entire industrial base is going to die and they can't afford that. You know, Toyota, you name it, you know, Nissan, uh, you know, the great Japanese brands, you know, they, they depend on in, in industrial levels of electricity at the at the at the terawatt hour scale that they can they know will be available 24 seven. So let's then put this in the context of, so we have the, the three different uh, levels and, you know, including the unplugged all the way to the high watt. And then there are these three imperatives. So they are integrity, capital, and fuel, right? Yes. And and so we talked a little bit about uh, integrity, but I want to just ask a little bit more about that. So with the integrity, who who is integrity is it? Is it, I mean, it might be multiple people's like, is it the government? Is it the grid? Is the core thing that somebody creating electricity needs to be able to make a return on it? What's the essence of integrity? All, all of those. Absolutely. Um, so let me, I'll, just a quick vignette that I think helps explain this. So I, I show in the book, I have a graphic um, based on just straight out World Bank data that when Saddam Hussein was in power in Iraq, and uh, you know, let's be clear, Saddam Hussein was a son of a bitch. He was a murderous thug. But when he was in power in uh, Iraq, which went from the, roughly the early 70s through the mid 2000, I think it was captured in 2005, hanged in 2006. But from the time of the, you know, his early days in power through the beginning of the second Iraq war, electricity theft in Iraq was effectively zero. I mean, the integrity of the Iraqi electric grid was maintained. Why? Because people knew you don't steal from Saddam. You know, if you steal electricity from Saddam, bad things could happen, really bad things. Well, when after Saddam is captured and hanged, electricity theft in Iraq skyrockets, right? Because what did Saddam do? He maintained integrity, <clears throat> the integrity of the grid. He maintained, of course, through force and intimidation. But he may he maintained a certain level of integrity in the Iraqi society. And the people who are running the Iraqi grid weren't going to steal, or if they stole, they weren't going to steal too much. And the people who were on, the, you know, using electricity, they may have stolen, but they weren't going to steal too much. After the integrity goes out of the system, after it's clear no one's in charge, well, then the everyone starts stealing. And the same thing we saw this, I mean, directly in Beirut. Um, you know, Lebanon is a failed state. Um, <clears throat> there, it's a proxy state where. The Americans, the Israelis, the the Saudis, the uh, the Iranians, everybody wants a little con, you know bit of control in in Lebanon. So what do you have in Beirut? You have entire sections of the city that are controlled by Hezbollah, the Iranian uh, backed militia, where they don't pay for their electric bills. They don't pay for electricity in that section of Beirut. And when the EDL, the the grid operator in Lebanon, says, "Well, you know, you should pay us," and Hezbollah just looks at him, gives him the you know one fingered salute, and says, "You come make us, 
you know, we'll, we'll shut down the city. We'll have a general strike and then see how you like it. So this, this integrity is critical and it require it can't be imposed from outside, but it's, it's, it's absolutely essential for the proper functioning of the grid, which has to pay for itself. Yeah. I think this is, I'm really happy that you took on this topic and this section of the book, because often those of us who are advocates of hydrocarbons, you know, one of the the values we can point to is is people becoming newly empowered with hydrocarbons, and that's crucial. And and one thing policy wise that absolutely needs to happen is we cannot restrict people's ability to use them. I mean, I think anything we're doing in terms of forbidding, discouraging poorer people from empowering themselves, I regard that as immoral. Um, but it's and, and as you mentioned, also any innovation we can do to make energy lower cost, that's obviously going to help. All, that that's going to be a positive uh, factor. Yeah. But we really need to can recognize. I, can, can I that, jump? Can I jump in? Oh, of course. One, one one quick point yeah. there because what, what's interesting to me as well is that in societies where integrity is lacking, such as in Lebanon, or when you look at 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 Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. What was the critical fuel for providing electricity? It's oil. Now, you and I would never, and and utilities in the United States, would only use oil as the last resort. Now, pre-1973, the first OPEC oil, during the OPEC oil embargo, a lot of utilities in in, in the electric sector in the United States were using oil. Oil was used for about 20% of of electricity production in the U.S. But as soon as the price went up, everybody, no, 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 we start burning coal because the Carter administration, Jimmy Carter said, we need to be burning more coal. And so utilities responded. But the integrity issue and the uh, oil-fired electricity uh, factor are closely tied so that in in Africa, in rural areas where integrity is lacking, oil-fired electricity is the only option because it's the only fuel that can be delivered and maintained where the, the grid will have integrity. And so when integrity is lacking, the consumer pays very high prices for their electricity because they're having to rely on oil. Great point. And by the way, if we have a Green New Deal, I'll bet oil-based electricity is going to skyrocket. Uh, because that's how people are going to protect themselves from the unreliable dysfunctional grid. You know how long the you know this with the coronavirus and the economic damage that it is having it is having both here in the United States and around the world. Just how robust the support for the Green New Deal is going to be when we get through all of this? Yeah, it, it's. I mean, because I saw a story out of Europe. I didn't read it in detail, but I saw like the headline and maybe a paragraph just about how EU officials are saying, "Yeah, we have to scale back some of our green uh, ambitions." And and I'm saying, "Okay, but you're scaling them back basically because your productivity has already been decimated, and you don't want to decimate it more. Well, maybe you should have considered the wisdom of having an ambition that would decimate." your productivity. And and that's in the US, I've I've been doing a little bit of TV on this. You know, we're getting a preview of the Green New Deal in terms uh-huh. of what does it look like when our ability to produce is dramatically decreased. Well, it sucks. And that's that's, you know, a mild preview of a, of a Green New Deal. So just to go back to this uh the you know, the three imperatives. So I was just getting into I think it's really important to talk about sometimes the harder things to talk about, which is what do countries need to do? What do people need to do on their own to make electricity possible? And this integrity issue is crucial. And it's part of why if, the, if, if we're saying anything 
uh, as you know, as a country, one thing should be, hey, you know, you need a business environment where people can make money on projects. Exactly as if you know, you're not going to start a steel plant in Nigeria if people can just steal the steel. That sounds a little, I didn't mean to have it sound right. uh, no, in a pun no. that way, but if you could just steal whatever, you know, or the widget or, or, you know, you need, you need this integrity of the system. And then that, that connects to the second one, which I want you to talk about, which is uh, capital. Right. Well, exactly. As what I say in the book and, and what I think is, is obvious, theft is the enemy of light. If there's rampant theft, you're just not going to have light because Everybody, everything's going to get stolen and it doesn't matter whether it's, and, and this is an issue that I write about in the book as well, is the amount of electricity being stolen to grow marijuana, right? It's rampant in California where you live. Numerous busts of, 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 of ganjapreneurs who are, you know, organized, <laughs> organized crime guys, many organized Chinese organized crime outfits who are stealing electricity because this, the profits to be made and because electricity is about a third of the cost of, of growing weed. Um, but whether it's, you know, marijuana growers stealing electricity or whether it's the people running the grid who, oh, well, we'll get a loan from the World Bank and then half of the loan money ends up in a Swiss bank account or, you know, in the Canary Islands or, or Cayman, Grand Cayman or somewhere else, you know, that 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 ends up with a failure of the grid because and, and that integrity can't be imposed from the outside. That's the, that's the really, really hard part of this. And that's why. I think that when when as I look forward and I think, well, what are going to be the ways that the world electrifies? Well, if you look at what's happened in Africa recently, um, huge discoveries of natural gas offshore, Mauritania, Senegal uh, 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 and, 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 uh, uh, and Tanzania, they're going to be huge gas producers. Well, then they should use that gas and use that gas to produce electricity. And it's going to take time. And as you point out, you Foreign companies aren't just going to rush in there if they don't know that they have the rule of law and enforceable contracts. And so how does this, why, why do you make capital one of the three imperatives? Well, because you can't do anything without money. I mean, you know, to back to my, you know, that what I just said about, well, say you, you need uh, 500 megawatts of new electricity capacity. Well, okay. It doesn't matter whether it's a coal plant or a nuclear plant or wind turbines or solar panels or gas plant or, you know, hydro, uh, hydro or geothermal. The money has to come from somewhere. You got to have a banker. You have to have some, you know, venture capitalist, somebody who's willing to say, well, yeah, I'll write you a check for, um, you know, $500 million for 500 megawatts. And um, I trust that you're going to pay me back over the next 20 years. Well, if you don't have somebody, if you, if the system doesn't have integrity, if, you know, a, a banker in, in Houston doesn't believe he can get his money back out of Ghana or Zambia or Pakistan or Mexico, he's not going to make that, that, that loan. So the capital is absolutely essential. And, and, and one other quick point about integrity, capital and fuel, if integrity is first, you, if you have the integrity, you can get the capital. If you have the capital, you can get the fuel. But if you don't have any of those, the grid will shrink to the size where those three things can be assured. And and the grid could be as small as, as we saw in Puerto Rico, just one household and one generator. And it, But that grid works because the integrity is, is assured. That is a great point. I, I love that point that on, yeah, on whatever level it exists, it has those, and with any functionality at all, it has those attributes. And of course, it's wildly inefficient to have it on 
on that level with all the fetishizing of, you know, I think there's a lot of fetishizing of, yeah, I'm going to have my own power plant at home and it's just going to be solar panels and a, and a battery and that kind of thing. Let me ask about fuel then. So when you mentioned coal, and I want to talk a little bit more sure. about coal, but so fuel is the third imperative. And then what are, you know, you're thinking, what, what are the attributes that a fuel has to have? Well, the first one, of course, is going to be geographic. So if you're in Iceland, and we went to Iceland, well, 25% of the electricity in Iceland is from geothermal. Well, that's great for Iceland, but that's not going to work in Nebraska. There's no geothermal resource in Nebraska. 75% of the electricity in, in Iceland is from hydro. Well, that's great, but that's not going to work in, oh, I don't know, Arizona or um, uh, New Mexico. They don't have those kinds of hydropower resources or here in Texas where I live. So the fuel is determined by, of course, the integrity, right? Who can afford the different fuel? But it also depends on the, 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 the stability of the government. Um, you know, nuclear can work here in the United States. It works in Russia. It works in China because we have a stable society and a uh, infrastructure, both a, a capital infrastructure and an intellectual infrastructure that can support a nuclear industry. Um, so that geography is critical um, because it, it it connects to all of these other factors. Um, why why do they burn coal in Wyoming? Because Wyoming has a ton of coal. Um, the same is true, you know, in, uh, uh, in, in Russia, why do they burn so much coal in Russia? Cause Russia has a whole lot of coal and, and the same with China. So a lot of factors are, are go into determining the fuel mix. Um, but you know, again, this is indicative of the fact that countries will do what they have to do to get the electricity they need and geography and will help determine what fuel mix, uh, is deployed. And then why is coal so universal? Uh, particularly in the you know, developing world or the empowering world? Well, there are a lot of reasons. And this is one of the things that, um, you know, everybody in the environmental left loves to hate coal. Well, okay, that's easy to do, right? Oh, it's black and it's old and, you know, but but it's persisted since the days of Edison. If since 1882, when Edison created the first central power plant on Pearl Street in lower Manhattan. He used coal. And here we are now, 140 years later, and coal still provides roughly 40%, 38 to 40% of all global electricity. Well, why is that? Well, again, because countries are going to pick the fuel that is that works for them. But when you look at coal, again, this is about geography. It, the deposits of coal and, the, and coal mines are widely dispersed geographically. The fuel is cheap. It's not just abundant, it's super abundant. And the price isn't affected by any OPEC-like entities that can be manipulated. And then you add in the final thing, these, you know, we've been building and operating these coal plants now for more than a century. The technology is well-established. Um, there's very little political or technology risk. And there are a bunch of different companies that can build them. Japanese companies, American companies, Russian, Chinese. And those companies can help get financing from their host country. So that's why today there are 200 gigawatts of new coal-fired capacity under construction, not being talked about, not just on the drawing boards. No, those they're being built now. Now, will they run at 100% capacity? No, they won't. But these com countries and companies are doing what's in their self-interest. And I talked about Japan earlier, and that's a classic example. They're going to build ultra-supercritical, that's very high-efficiency uh, coal combustion, 
they're building ultra super critical power plants in Japan because they know they're reliable and affordable. Yeah, you know, one one point I think about a lot is that you know the energy is only useful if it's low cost and reliable. So at least only useful to most people if it's low cost and reliable. And then to be low cost and reliable, you need a whole process of producing it that ends up being low cost and reliable. And with coal, you're mentioning these different attributes that allow people to do this, to generate energy, to generate electricity this way in all kinds of different places uh, around the world. And then you just think, oh, well, yeah, what is people don't realize? Oh, yeah, geothermal, that's going to be hard to do where you don't have geothermal. Hydro is even quite limited. Nuclear can be difficult uh, to do in certain places. Natural gas can be difficult because there's more, you know, that the transportation isn't nearly as as uh, easy. So I'm glad that you've been continuing for all these years to get, to recognize the value of coal because it's become fashionable for people to say, oh, well, we don't need coal. We have natural gas. And yet there's a really good reason why billions of people, particularly the poorest people, are choosing coal. Well, and, and to me, it's, you know, not even so much saying, well, I'm cheering on coal or whatever. It's just, this is the reality, and that's the part where I think that you know uh, it, what our, where our work has really overlapped over you know the last decade or so is well let's just look at the you know what is we can talk about what is the ideal or what the the you know what people want or think they want or what you know is politically popular, but what's really happening, and what's really happening is that you look at the BP statistical review. And coal's share of the global electricity market has been at 38% for more than 30 years. So this idea that we're just going to make some quick transition and we're going to go and do something else that is, you know, cleaner, greener, less CO2, you know, whatever. No, 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 <laughs> not so. Because these energy transitions and the energy and power systems that we have built They've been built over decades and trillions of dollars have been invested in them. We're not just going to pivot and do something else because it's political, fa politically fashionable. It may go for a little while, but ultimately it has to be able to be sustainable, both from an economic standpoint, a resource standpoint and a land use standpoint. And we haven't talked at all really about renewables, but that's another major point I make in the book. And it's another point that I really a lot of my work lately has been focused on is the, the reason that renewables are not going to take over the economy in the United States are not going to be, we're not going to, the Green New Deal is going to, is not going to happen. It's going to fail is because there isn't enough land available to carpet the countryside with five or 600 foot wind turbines and thousands of miles of new high voltage transmission lines. It's simply not going to happen. Yeah, let's let's talk about this because you know one thing that's interesting about where our work, what our work emphasizes is I am a huge, my emphasis on renewables, which I often call unreliables, is probably 90% on the unreliability and right. why that doesn't scale. And you are really, you know, you are uh, talk about that, but you also talk a lot about land use. And so I want to hear you talk about land use because maybe I need to incorporate those arguments more. Sure. Well, it's a point, I have a whole chapter in the book. It's really, it's the longest chapter in the book. It's 30 pages. Um, this land is my land is the title. Um, looking at these land use conflicts. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to have a piece in the New York Post tomorrow. I had a piece in the New York Post a couple of weeks ago talking about this very issue. Why am I pro-nuclear? Well, one reason is that it's low carbon, that it's scalable, um, that it's ba it provides baseload, very reliable power 24-7, but it also has an extraordinarily small footprint. 
um, the Indian Point nuclear plant in Buchanan, New York, just north of New York City, covers one square kilometer. And from one square kilometer, it produces 16 terawatt hours of electricity per year. To match that output from Indian Point with wind turbines would require covering 13, more than 1,300 square kilometers with wind turbines. 1,300 times more land. And, and, and this is the great disconnect, I think. But, you know, you have environmental groups, Sierra Club, Natural Resource Defense Council, 350.org, your, your, your acquaintance and mine, Bill McKibben. Oh, well, we'll just run the world on, on, on wind turbines. The hell you will. Bill McKibben lives in Vermont, teaches at Middlebury College. You cannot build wind energy capacity in Vermont. In fact, just earlier this week, the last pending wind project in Vermont, a project called Derriere involving <laughs> Derriere involving <laughs> one wind turbine was was voted down or was disallowed by the State Public Utilities Commission. You, it, it, Vermonters hate wind energy. But in the last election, both the Democratic and the, gov uh, the uh, Republican gubernatorial candidates said, yeah, we're opposed to it. In Bernie, Sa Bernie Sanders, the architect of the Green New Deal, you cannot build wind in Vermont because of land use conflicts. So this idea, it, it just it, 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 there are many reasons, there are many problems with renewables and, and the unreliability, the, inter the incurable intermittency is one of them. But I think it even, it, it, as, as I've said many times, it, it's even before that. Where are you going to put it all? Just, you know, go slowly. I'm from Oklahoma. I'm kind of slow. Tell me where you're going to build and you're going to put hundreds of thousands of wind turbines. It's just not going to happen. Well, they because they're, you know, the argument is because you'll sometimes get this from Elon Musk has a version of this with solar because they'll say, well, if you just the, the solar version is if you just like put all the solar panels, you know, you take a really sunny area and you, you run some uh estimate of this many kilowatt hours a, a day. And if we just put it here, it wouldn't take up all that much space. And then, you know, and compared to the whole country, so they'll show it'll be some fraction or even a decent fraction of a, you know, of a modest sized state. And they'll say, oh, that doesn't take up that much room. And for the wind turbines, they can say the same thing. They'll just say, yeah, but you can, you can live around these wind turbines. And if you put, if they were all really bunched next to each other, they wouldn't take up that much space. So they can be on farms and they can be in landscapes and it's, it's not a problem. So what do you say to that? <laughs> yeah, I like where you said, well, you can live near them, <laughs> right? So you live in Laguna Beach, California. How many wind turbines are in Laguna Beach? Uh, zero. Oh, gosh. I will imagine. Well, in fact, you can't build wind turbines in California, pretty much anywhere in California, despite the fact that the state has, I think it's a 60% renewable electricity mandate by 2030. Since 2013, California has added a grand total of about 200 megawatts of new wind capacity. You can't build it. People don't want to live near it. People that have money will fight it and have fought it. So what is the wind industry doing? They're trying to go out in remote areas, you know, like Hinton, Oklahoma. Well, my mom grew up in Enid, a little, you know, wheat farming cattle community out in western Oklahoma. What happened in Hinton? The town of Hinton, three, population 3,000, they resisted a wind project being proposed by NextEra Energy, the world's biggest wind energy company. What did NextEra do? They sued them in state and federal court to force the little town to take these wind projects. So even if you say, oh, well, we'll just put it out there and fly over country. And this, I call this the vacant land myth, that there's just a bunch of vacant land out there that nobody cares about. Well, it's just not true. 
you live in California, San Bernardino County, California, the largest county by area in America has banned large scale renewables. So even if you could build more uh, high, de- uh, you know, solar projects, whether it's thermal solar or po- photovoltaic, even if you could put wind turbines out there, you can't build enough high voltage transmission to get it from where the people, uh, where the people ain't to where the people are, because the people that live in between those two spots don't want to look at your high voltage transmission lines either. So it, it, again, intermittency, yes. Uh, resource intensity, yes. But land use, I think, comes in front of all of those. The, you know, one thing I've thought about in terms of, I, I've been working on the second version of Moral Case, I've been trying to enumerate all the different fallacies that green energy so activists- So where, where are you on that? When's the book supposed to be <laughs> I thought you were done. Yeah, no, not done. Not done. Uh, uh, it's early next year. I think it's supposed to come out in January, but it'll there's, be worth it. It'll be worth there's it. No, there's no misery like a book deadline. I, let me know. I, you know, I understand <laughs> this. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually pretty fun to, uh, to work on. I'm, I'm learning a lot. But one, one thing I would talk about in the, the fallacies section is one of the fallacies of green energy is that the greens would actually allow it to be built. Because a lot of the opposition that you're talking about comes from people in the name of, hey, this has too much environmental impact. And of course, from the perspective of land use, disruption of views and whatnot, it has huge uh, impacts that that if, if you're if you're against development of the land, you're certainly going to be against development of this. I have one question about the wind turbines, which is what's your assessment of the health effects? Is you know to what extent is that a legitimate concern by people versus to what extent is it something that's that's not legitimate? It's absolutely legitimate. The the noise issue is real. The noise issue, the noise problems with wind turbines is real. It has been known not just for years, but for decades. The wind industry has tried to downplay it, act like, oh, these people are just a bunch of complainers. I, you know, I, it, this is one of the things that I, I it, it really does, to say it aggravates me, it understates it. The, the, the scandal that has happened with the low frequency noise and infrasound that is being produced by these wind projects and that is being inflicted upon people in rural areas, both here in the United States and around the world, is unconscionable. If this were the oil and gas industry and they were doing, you know, spewing this kind of pollution because noise is a pollutant, that would be, you know, it'd be just, it it would be, uh, you'd hear about it all the time from Sierra Club, 350.org, Natural Resource Defense Council, you name it, all the usual environmental groups. But because it's supposedly green and and renewable, well, oh, well, those people, they don't really matter or they downplay it. Or, I mean, even in a publication in California that was, they wrote several stories about this. It was a Sierra Club publication. They, they actually recalled the articles, pulled them back because it didn't fit the narrative. So the noise issue, I'm, I'm, you know, it touches a nerve for me because I've interviewed people who've abandoned their homes. Uh, if people are interested in this, just Google Dave and Rose Enns. E-N-Z is their last name. And re- it's on my website. I interviewed these people, gosh, now, how many years ago? Five, six years ago. These people have abandoned their home in, in Denmark, Wisconsin, because of the noise that was inflicted upon them by wind turbines that were built near them. I mean, it just, it's, if, this were, if this were the oil and gas industry, you know, there'd be hell to pay. But because it's the wind industry and they think it's renewable, oh, these people are just complainers or the noise isn't a problem, it, it, it's a scandal. Yeah, I'm glad you... you... 
are emphasizing that point, and I I want to look into it more and and emphasize it more. And it's, it's part of if we're we're talking to, about empowering the world and and electricity as fundamental to the wealth of nations, and and you know I would put it as human flourishing. There's just so much dishonesty with the green movement about what will actually work to do that. And you can see it both dishonesty about what can even produce low-cost electricity at scale and also just dishonesty about the side effects, not acknowledging uh, not acknowledging the the noise issue with wind or not not acknowledging the intrusiveness that these things have that people don't want to live around them for um, other reasons. And so the last topic I want to talk about is what do you think we can do in general to champion more electricity uh, production and use around the world. You mentioned some obstacles to it because it's not like we are the lords of the world, nor should we be. But what can people do to champion better electricity policies? You know, that's a good question. And um, I, 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 I've thought about this some, but I, I, I hesitate to give some kind of a glib answer because one of the problems with the electricity business and the electricity sector is that it's complicated, you know, to say, oh, well, I want better electric service or, well, okay, so you have your local utility. I'm, I live in Austin. It's a city-owned utility. Well, the city utility answers to the city council, and then there's part of the grid operator here in Texas, and it's such an incredibly complex web that makes up this network, right? The, the electric grid that we see, but don't never think about. And, you know, this invisible force that we just take for granted. So how do we advocate for better policy? Um, you know, I, I need to think about that, Alex, and it kind of caught me flat footed. And it's kind of in the first time. And I'm, you know, I think the, maybe it is the first thing. And I wrote an essay just recently about uh, Freeman Dyson, who uh, died. That was a great essay, by the way. I really love the essay and and that you linked to the essay of his that I wasn't familiar with, which is crazy because it so overlaps with my own thinking. And and it was tremendous. I quoted it. I quoted it, it 10 years ago in my book, Power Hungry. And when he died, I thought, well, I need to bring that essay back. But what, what I think better policy, not just about electricity, but about energy, I think, is that first you have to. And I think this sings from your hymnal is that we have to understand that this this form of energy, particularly electricity, this really is a human right that people are they deserve this. And to, to you know, follow on what Freeman Dyson said, you know, if, if the trade off is accepting a little more CO2 in the atmosphere for having more people reach their human potential for more human flourishing. Again, to yours, your, your, your phrase, your, your terminology, I call it nourishes humans. Same, same thing that that's the highest good. And, and that's the metric we should use. And so we need to move past this idea that CO2 is the only villain. No. And, and, and again, paraphrasing, paraphrasing Dyson, no evil, uh, the, the, the evils are poverty and, and lack of human achievement. Those are the real evils. And and far greater than 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 uh, slight increases in 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 CO two emissions. Well, I, I'd say in terms of of championing, you know, one, so I think some of the essentials are things that are involved in in your book, and is one reason why people should get it. Because if you think about if people really grasp the fundamentality of electricity to human life and human flourishing, 
And then they grasp the reality of the options of what can give that to billions of people around the world. That will have enormous power in shaping the choices they make. And that includes avoiding these very disastrous choices like trying to do a Green New Deal with 100% renewable, which is uh, impossible in terms of anything resembling what we would consider modern uh, electricity. So any any final thoughts you want to share before we wrap up? Um, sure, just a couple. Um, so uh, uh, the the things that I, I talk about in the end, I think in terms of the future development and future electrification, we have to double global electricity production over the next 20 to 30 years. To, to That's all the projections, all the trend lines point toward that. Well, what are going to be the fuels? Well, I think it's natural gas and nuclear are going to be key. I, I see some growth in solar and batteries. I think solar is going to grow more than wind because of the things we've talked about in terms of land use. But um, but I think the, the only other things I'd say was, yeah, I mean, I encourage you, you, you have a, a, a large following. I appreciate your interest in the book. Uh, I also recorded the audio book for this, uh, which I didn't do in any of my other books. So I was pleased so uh, folks can buy it on the, uh, get it on the audio book. You can get it on your Kindle. I make a better royalty. And remember, you don't have to read it. You just have to buy it. I, I forgot that that was your uh, expression. I'll definitely recommend doing both. So I have, Excellent. I have even purchased both, even though both the audiobook and the digital book, even though I got a free copy uh, of the of the physical book. Right. So Good. I would encourage listeners to do the same, uh, budget permitting. And yeah, I've I've learned a lot from you, Robert, and you were one of the early people who inspired me on these these energy issues to really love the value of energy and also to love the just the technology behind it, which I think you're very good at explaining. So I, I always appreciate your work and I thank you for coming on the show. Happy to do it, Alex. Thanks a million. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks again to Robert Bryce for joining us. Make sure to get his book, A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations at Amazon or wherever else you like to get books. I don't quite understand why anyone gets books at anywhere other than Amazon, although I guess they have. Jeff Bezos has made this $10 billion climate pledge, which maybe is a subject for another day. But my summary of it today is to pledge $10 billion to activists whose sole success is going to be making energy much more expensive is taking $10 billion to probably destroy $10 trillion because that's what it means to make energy more expensive is you destroy humanity's productive ability at the most fundamental level imaginable. So I don't know, maybe don't go to, to Amazon. I don't have a good solution, but Amazon I, I think of as an amazing company and Jeff Bezos is somebody that I admire deeply in most ways. So if anyone knows him, I would really like to have a conversation with him and I think, I think he knows there's something off with what he's doing. His, after all, his uh, parents, or at least his dad, was in the oil and gas industry for decades, and he himself has quite a good understanding of the benefits of the oil and gas industry and has spoken about them. He doesn't do it too much anymore, or ever anymore, as far as I know. But he is, uh, he's a really smart guy, and he should know better. In particular, jumping onto renewable and not talking about nuclear, that is really... That is really a contradiction to what I think of as, as some really exceptional qualities of character that made Amazon possible. Okay, next we have Michael Mazzoni. Michael is a successful energy lawyer at the firm Haynes and Boone in Houston, Texas, and we are going to talk about intellectual persuasion. 
uh, get ready and I will explain uh, at the beginning of the interview why this is so important, even if energy law is the farthest thing from your mind. Okay, enjoy. Hey everyone, this is going to be an unusual but hopefully very useful segment of Power Hour. The topic is winning energy legal cases with intellectual persuasion. That's winning energy legal cases with intellectual persuasion. So let me give you a little background on why I'm talking about this and then who my special guest is and why I think that's, uh, why I think this is a really important topic for everyone and then particularly people in the industry and then even within that, particularly within the industry, people involved in any kind of uh, legal case. So on this podcast and on my other podcast, The Human Flourishing Project, I share—I often share principles of what I call intellectual persuasion. And the idea of intellectual persuasion is that you're trying to persuade somebody intellectually, which means you're not trying to manipulate them. You're just trying to give them a super clear, honest explanation of the truth. And the premise is that if you can really connect with their intellect, with their mind, you can make a lot of progress. Now, this is not something that is widely viewed as a good idea. Many persuasion efforts believe that explaining the truth doesn't help at all and that you just have to manipulate people uh, emotionally. I believe emotion, emotional connection is crucial, but I think it's totally compatible with intellectual persuasion in the long term is incredibly helped by intellectual persuasion. But usually the, the premise is, yeah, you can't actually persuade people intellectually. You can't really connect with their minds. You just have to connect with their feelings apart from their minds, and that involves some sort of uh, manipulation. And my view about this is that people who say that, usually they're not very good at explaining things, or often they're not even clear what they think themselves. So they want to. So sometimes I see people, they're defending an oil company for something, and then I'll hear their own views and they don't even agree with the company that they're defending. I'll say, well, how could you persuade somebody else if you don't even agree with this yourself? And their view is, well, I don't need to agree with it. I just need to manipulate people. Whereas my view is, no, if I really believe something and I have good, honest reasons for believing it, there must be some way to get that across at least to a lot of other people or at least move them substantially in my uh, direction. So on my, my podcasts, particularly the Human Flourishing Project, and if you look at the first 10 episodes or so, there are several on different aspects of or different elements of intellectual persuasion. Um, I've talked about these principles, and I've talked about how they've worked for me, and I've talked about how I've used them in my consulting work, primarily helping different kinds of energy companies message different crucial issues to stakeholders, whether it be investor relations, uh, legal cases, government affairs. And recently, I was talking to a, a longtime uh, friend and ally of mine, Michael Mazzoni, and he's a very successful energy lawyer in Houston at the firm Haynes & Boone. And I've known Michael for years, but really in the last year and a half, listening to the Human Flourishing Project, he on his own started applying some of the principles of intellectual persuasion and started having a lot of success. And we started talking about it. And then more recently, he became a client of ours and we started working on some, uh, some projects together. And he told me recently, we were, we were just 
uh, connecting and he told me that he had actually created a presentation for other lawyers about how some of the principles of intellectual persuasion helped him win some major legal cases. So I thought that this would be cool as an illustration in general uh, of intellectual persuasion and, and some examples of some of the principles. And then for those of you who are in energy or certainly in law, this may help even more, but I'm going to try to make it of universal uh, interest and, and explain how the, the principles we discuss can be applied in, in so many different cases. So uh, Michael Mazzoni, welcome to Power Hour. Well, thanks, Alex. Happy to be on. Yeah, uh, good uh, good to have you. I know you've listened to a lot of these, so it's always uh, great when, when listeners uh, come on the show. Yeah, almost all of them. Almost all of them. Wow. I, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I, really, I really appreciate when people think that highly of, of the content to consume that, uh, that much of it. So what I want to do is I want to pull up on my screen the presentation that you shared with me, and then we'll walk through some of the slides and I'll give a couple of comments and then you can share how you've applied this in particular uh, circumstances. And I think that's, that's going to be the value. Uh, a lot of the value for people is they'll get to see, oh yeah, this is actually something that is working uh, in, a, you know, in, a real, in a real life way. So overall you have this presentation and it says uh, arguing your case and you have these elements. Framework is key, argue to 100, not to zero, context bridging, and then give your logic not your uh, opinion. And, and people familiar with my work on intellectual persuasion will at least recognize the first three of these. And then the fourth, we'll see you have a different name for something that I call the opinion story. So let's start off with the framework is key. And I'll just give how I think of this, and then you can share how you think of it and how you've uh, applied it to a particular case. So for me, framework, it's a term I love because framework in the physical realm is a starting structure. And the idea, say, if you have a framework of a building, is that the starting structure of the building determines everything else about the building. So when you're building a building, you really want to make sure to get the framework right. And I think the same is true with any thought process or any conversation or any explanation. There are certain starting points uh, in the discussion that you want to be clear on. And then you know, that's going to determine uh, how everything proceeds. So I, I often divide frameworks into, into three categories. So you can think of your methods, your assumptions, and your values. So a method might be something like, hey, I believe in looking at the full picture of something, not just the negative picture or the positive picture. So if I'm evaluating different forms of energy, I want to look at the positives and negatives of fossil fuels, the positives and negatives of solar and wind, et cetera, et cetera, not just the positives of solar and the negatives of coal. And I find that when I frame an explanation with a certain method and I can get the person to be on the same page, then the explanation goes much better. And the same thing is true for, if, you know, if, if we have an assumption that I can clarify that we agree on, that helps. And then if we have a value, that's really crucial because ultimately in any conversation or explanation, there has to be a common goal that we're after. And often when I'm talking about energy, I, from the perspective of the planet, I often talk about, okay, well, is your goal the most natural planet possible? Is that the goal, the, the planet that's least impacted by humans? 
or is your goal the most human-friendly planet possible? Is it the place that's the best to live for humans? Because that's not the same as the most natural planet. The, the best planet for humans requires a lot of development, a lot of transformation, a lot of impact. In, in some cases, you want to keep it quote-unquote natural, uh, but in general, and in many other cases, you want to dramatically transform. So I've found that when I can get on the same page with people about those things, uh, whether it's the methods, the uh, assumptions, or the, the values, which includes the ultimate goal, it's very helpful. And so I know you, uh, you've you had quite a bit of success framing. So what, what's an example of how you've used uh, framing to help, you know, to help win a case and really to help, you know, a jury understand the issues better? Yeah, so um, the way I look at the framing issue is, sort of controlling the questions in a trial to make sure that the right questions are being articulated and argued. Um, I can give you an example of that uh, from a case that we had. Um, so, so I would just, just one thing on that is, yeah. so I think of your, the questions, I mean, that really relates to the goal, right? Cause ultimately there, there's a question and their goal is to come up with the right answer to the question. And then that, you know, and then that's going to determine guilt or innocence. Do you think of it that way? Yeah, that, so I, I, the way I've you know, held it in my mind is controlling the questions to be decided in the trial. Mm-hmm. I don't get complete control over that. Um, my opponent has a say as to what questions he wants to be decided, and the court will have precise legal questions that have to be answered as well. But I think the key to me is uh, uh, to frame the case in such a way that the, the important issues are being debated, and if it's done right, that will fit within the legal questions uh, those legal questions will fit within the framing that I've done. So the example I would give is um, from a case we represented a large company. Let's call it Company X for this. And they were being sued by an employee of a contractor that the company had hired to come work on a well site for the company. Now, the way the plaintiffs want to frame the case is Company X hired a contractor and told it what to do at its well site. The contractor's employee was injured doing this work the employee lost a leg below the knee. And by giving these bad instructions, according to the, the plaintiff's framing, company X breached its duty of care to the contractor's employee, which resulted in the injury. And in the case, the employee was seeking compensation for his life-changing injury. Well, the way to look at, uh, the way that, the way that we look at framing according to your principles is, is to contrast it with the typical defense framing. So typical defense framing would be, Company X owed a duty of care, did not owe a duty of care to the contractor's employees, but if it did, it was just a limited duty and it didn't breach that duty. If it did breach that duty, the breach didn't cause the injury. And if the breach did cause the injury, the plaintiff's employee is not entitled for the injury for the amount of money he's seeking. That's, that's a very typical framing. It's very lawyerly. And notice that it wholly accepts the, the plaintiff's framing of the case. Now, so the plaintiffs, so I, I mean, I take the plaintiff's framing as company X uh, gave an order that made this guy lose his leg or lose the bottom half of his leg. Basically, that's it. That's it. And, and it seems like they're conce- pretty much conceding that, but then there seem to be all these technicalities. That's right. And that's, that's the typical way to frame the case from the defense perspective as I laid it out. Now, I used your framing principles and I thought, well, this is not really the way to properly frame the case, and, and I framed it this way. Company X hired this contractor for its skill and its expertise, including its ability to do work, a dangerous work in a safe way. 
the contractor and this crew, including the plaintiff, had done this job thousands of times. So really the issue in the case is when a customer like, uh, like company X <clears throat> hires a skilled contractor to perform work, is the customer responsible for the safety of the contractor's employees or instead is the contractor responsible for the safety of its own employees? So when the case is framed this way, it's a, it's a really different case. And the result uh, in our case was that company X paid nothing on the claim. In fact, its legal fees were paid for by the contractor, the plaintiff's employer, and the employee who lost his leg below the knee, who was to a large extent responsible for his injury, was compensated through his own company, his own employer's injury compensation program. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So it's, it's so valuable to just be thinking about, okay, what's the starting structure that is going to shape everything else. And yeah, you can, I mean, I can imagine that when you frame it the way that you did, somebody could even think you're, you're using, you know, you're a customer of the contractor and someone can probably imagine, oh yeah, well, I hire a contracting firm, you know, to work on my house. And then somebody loses a limb with a chainsaw. Like, is that my fault? Well, no, I hired them. Like they're experts in this and they're experts in safety. It's a, That's it's, exactly right. That's there's exactly just so much right. leverage in thinking about, okay, what's the how is this case being framed by my opponents and recognize it's never being framed to my advantage. And if you think you're right, then it's not being framed with the truth in mind. And then to think about, okay, what, what high leverage reframes can I do that the audience will agree with because they're, they're right and they're reasonable. And the more you can do that up front, the more it changes the whole case versus if you agree with their framework and then you try to, uh, you try to just make clever little refutations to different parts of their case, it often uh, doesn't work. And then that brings us to the next one, which is uh, arguing to 100. So the way I think about arguing to 100, you have this X axis uh, of 100 and negative 100, and really 100 represents the ultimate goal or ideal or highest good, and negative 100 is the lowest evil. And my premise is that in any discussion, there's always some view of what is the good and what is the bad. And so an example I use a lot to explain this is not an energy example, but in, in the 2016 election, I think President Trump rhetorically very successfully argued to 100, or he, he reframed the debate to argue to 100. So I think of it as before he was running, negative uh, 100 was increasing inequality, and then 100 was equality. They, so the, the real ideal was equality, and that was the focus. And he really changed it to where 100 was make America great again, so American greatness, and negative 100 was American decline. And then by reframing the goal and the evil, he was then able to argue, okay, my policies are bringing us to the right direction. Whereas, and I don't agree, by the way, with American greatness as, as the goal, unless you mean by that American freedom. And I think there's a mixture of what people mean by American greatness. And part of it is freedom, but part of it isn't. But I'm just showing the, using this to illustrate the power of the reframe versus if you just agree, if you just agree, yeah, I agree we're trying to reduce inequality. Well, then you're not gonna be able to say that much if you're advocating freedom, because there is a definite tension between freedom and, uh, and inequality. So you often just end up me tooing the people who want more state power, whether it's over healthcare or, uh, or anything else. 
So I'm curious, Michael, so how have you been using arguing to 100 and, and how do you think about it? Right. So the way I think about it is I, I don't want to start or I do want to start an argument at least at a, in a neutral position. I don't want to start in a deep hole. And so I hold that the concept of arguing to 100 in my head to use a sports analogy at the start of a trial, I want the scoreboard to read zero to zero, not 100 for my opponent or zero for me. And most of the time I'm representing the defendant. So I get to go second in every trial that the defendant is the party being sued. So very quickly after a plaintiff's opening statement, it could be a hundred for my opponent and zero for me, even before I open my mouth to make my opening statement. Now, if I start trying to explain away the plaintiff's case, uh, when I'm done and assuming I'm a hundred percent successful, I'm just back to neutral as you've explained in when you articulated the arguing to 100 idea. Now, note that this means that success is climbing myself out of a hole instead of achieving something on my own. Now, some lawyers recognize this problem. Uh, there's an expression among lawyers that if you're explaining, you're losing. And, but some defense lawyers will accept this because they think just getting back to neutral as a defendant is a win. They think if they've nullified the plaintiff's case, that that's a win. But I think that's weak, and I think it's better to prosecute my own case, which means arguing the points that I framed earlier and arguing within my framework. So the principle arguing to 100 is closely tied to the framing principle. Now to drive it home, just to use the example of company X again, arguing to 100 mean that I would marshal all the facts of the case that support the idea that skilled contractors are hired for their skill they're hired for their knowledge of the, how to work just to be done. They're hired for their extensive experience and having done the work. They're hired because of this particular crew's skills. They're hired because of their own, the contractor's own safety rules and the contractor's own safety record. And that, that alliance, because I've, I've thought about arguing to 100 and because I framed it correctly, I've got all the facts lined up in the, in the, in the right direction instead of trying to explain away why the plaintiff's case is not right. And this is Got all it. as opposed to, we didn't do it, but even if we did do it, it's not as bad as the plaintiff claims, which seems really weak, really lawyerly and really defensive. Yeah, so an example that this reminds me of, and this, I, I didn't talk about the, the contrast arguing to 100, which, which you did talk about, but it's arguing to zero. So that basically, so if you think about the example of shale energy in the U.S., you can think of it as the way it was framed was negative 100 is more fossil fuel use, and then positive 100 is a totally green economy. And when the shale revolution started occurring in the late 2000s, you had the, the, you know, the dominant narrative was shaped really by uh, Josh Fox, who created the Gasland movie. And his essential thing was he would just give a litany of explanations of why shale energy, or as he would call it, fracking was bad. And so he would talk about, first and foremost, you know, this is just using more fossil fuels. And so that's bad. That brings us toward negative 100. But then he'd say, you know, it's causing contaminated groundwater. 
and it's causing these unprecedented earthquakes and it's causing cancer clusters. A lot of what you saw from the industry, so he's, he's arguing them to negative 100. A lot of what you saw from the industry is they're trying to refute each one of these, but there was mostly just trying to refute. So they're saying, oh, well, I'm not going to, like, here's where you're wrong about groundwater and here's where you're wrong about earthquakes and here's where you're wrong about cancer clusters. But the best case scenario there, if you're just playing that kind of defense is getting to zero. But if, if the other side is setting the direction, they, you never even get to zero. And I think this happens a lot in legal cases where there's so many things thrown at you. But if it's really framed in the opponent's way, then you can just, you can just sort of reduce people's confidence in it. But it's, it, they're still not left with anything clear. Whereas what you're talking about is you're giving a clear, uh, you know, a really clear framing of it where you're saying, no, this is, here's the situation this customer hired the contractor, uh, including they hired their ex- their safety expertise with the contractor's people. And so this is how it played out. And all the facts support the idea that our client responsibly hired this contractor who then made a mistake or uh, with its employees or in any case did something that is not at all within the responsibility of the customer. Right. So the next one is uh, context bridging. This is a really fundamental aspect of intellectual persuasion because it gets to the core of what you're doing in explaining something. And I like this, this little graphic uh, you have here. I don't know, I don't know where you, you got it, but it's, it's pretty cool. So it's, for those who are just listening, it's, you can see there's a building, there are two buildings and people are standing on the top of the buildings and it's the beginning of a bridge and they're like puzzle pieces that the bridge isn't fully built. So there are two separate people. They're being separated by air, but they're sort of, they have these puzzle pieces that can then build uh, the full bridge. And so the idea of context bridging is that when you're explaining something, what you're doing is you're starting with, you have two contexts in mind. And, and a context is the sum of what somebody knows and thinks they know. So you can think of, okay, I have context. There's context A, which is where they're beginning and then context B, which is where I want them to end. And I, and I think of it as to get them from A to B, there are three essential things you need to do. Sometimes you need to add context. So you need to just give them facts or explanations that they didn't know. And then sometimes you have to subtract. So there's something they believe that's not true. You have to get rid of that. And often you have to do what I call modify. So you need to take something that they believe, which is maybe half true, and you have to help them modify it to see it in a different way. So for example, with the climate issue, I'm often doing modification because it'll be, yes, I do believe that rising CO2 levels have some impact on climate, but I don't believe that they have a catastrophic impact on climate. And that's the kind of thing where people, it's being positioned before as, oh, you're either a climate denier or you're a climate a believer, which means you're a climate catastrophist. And I'm trying to modify it and say, no, I can believe that we have an impact on climate without believing that it's catastrophic and with believing that the impact on climate is worth it, given all the benefits that, uh, that come with it. And so that's, that's an example of, of modification. But the broader thing I'm always having in mind is what is the starting context of my audience? And then where do I want them to be? What's the ending context, the context be? And then what are the steps, what are the essential steps that are necessary? And I, I want to make sure to use my time very efficiently so that I'm really giving them the crucial context versus being off topic 
or versus ignoring crucial points of context without which they can't really get them. I can't really get them where I want them. So how, how are you thinking about and using context bridging? Yeah, uh, so before we get to that, I'd like to emphasize uh, the importance of these principles we've talked about. Um, I was representing an energy company in one of the cases featured in one of the Joss Fox films. I think it was Gasland 2. And unfortunately, I hadn't heard your lectures on these points prior to the time I tried that case. Um, we took an adverse verdict uh, in, the, in the trial court, but we got it reversed on appeal. But I think I would have done a much better job had I heard these talks. Uh, before I tried that case, um, because we didn't we didn't frame it correctly, and we were arguing from negative 100 to zero most of the trial. Uh, and uh, as I said, we took an adverse verdict, but we got it turned around on appeal. But it, it it would have been easier, I think, for our client had I understood these principles better uh, when we when we first tried that case, which was in I want to say 2011. Uh, but on context bridging, as applied to a trial, I think it really means um, the simplest explanation is identifying gaps in the juror's knowledge and figuring out how to cross or close those gaps uh, during the trial. So the questions I ask are, what knowledge does a prospective juror think he has that isn't quite right or two will interfere with the way he views uh, my case? And what does each juror need to know that he doesn't already know? or and two that if he knew would help them view my case uh, correctly in other words i've summarized it as what knowledge is in jurors heads that i need to fix because it's wrong or clarify because it's unclear or add to because it's just not there and recognizing the principles of context bridging means that my jury selection process is going to be entirely different so i'm going to try to answer these questions as the top goal in jury selection about the jurors as opposed to using the jury selection to what lawyers typically do which is to start arguing their case early or just trying to identify somehow identify who the bad jurors are in the abstract really without without the focus on what knowledge do i need to know what knowledge do these jurors need to have um, what knowledge just needs to be fixed and what knowledge does need to be clarified. So it's really, really important to recognize context bridging because then I can make my jury selection process um, much more useful and productive uh, in the case. So the, the case against company X provides a really good example of context bridging. So company X was a giant well-known oil company. Every single person that showed up for jury duty knows this company and has uh, heard this company's name. And what most prospective jurors will assume about the company is that since they are a, such a large oil company, they will know more about how to service a damaged well than the virtually unknown service company who was the employer of this employee lost his leg below the knee. This is a very, very important fact. If company X knows more than its contractor about repairing a damaged well, then it's much easier to hold that company contractor company X responsible for not giving proper re repair instructions. But most, most jurors will assume coming into the trial is 100% not true. Company X, like most major oil producers, delegate to contractors repair of damaged wells, and they've done this for years. They don't have anywhere near the institutional knowledge or the experience in oil well repair that their contractors have. So our jurors thinking otherwise is an understandable gap in their knowledge that I need to bridge in the case. 
and recognizing the principle of context bridging allowed me to do that, recognizing what I needed to do during the trial that otherwise wouldn't have done without the idea of context bridging. Yeah, I mean, this this reminds me, I'll, I'll speak of this in the very abstract, but in, in some of the work we've done together, I apologize, we're having a temporary emergency. So I'm just gonna wait a second. We have a very, very sensitive uh, smoke alarm in our house. <laughs> and it's very, it's very, uh, it's very funny because it's, it's, I guess it's trying to be helpful, but if there's any smoke whatsoever, it just starts yelling fire, 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 which is really inaccurate and, uh, and distressing the first time you hear it. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump back. So this, uh, just your, what you're just discussing now with context bridging uh, reminds me of some discussions we've had in our own uh, ongoing work together where we're looking at a case, so much of it is looking at, okay, what's, what's the starting point of the audience and where do we need them to be? And one key element of that is what, is the, what are the different confusions uh, often put forward either by the culture by their upbringing or often by the opponents that need to be clarified. And this, well, I didn't work with you on the case you're discussing. This is a, a perfect example where there's just this starting assumption that, yeah, of course, company X is going to have all the expertise in terms of the employee safety of anyone who's working directly or indirectly from, for their company, including the contractor. And if you don't challenge that, that piece of context is going to just destroy people's thinking throughout the case. And so it's just a very high leverage thing to think at the outset, okay, where are they? Where do I want them to be? What are the key things that need to be added, subtracted, or modified? Now, the last slide that we're going to discuss is you have give your logic, not your opinion. And I like this. Uh, I'm curious why you chose this graphic of Zach uh, Galifianakis. I don't know if it's, if this is from a uh, from one of the hangover movies or something, but the, 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 the point I know you're referring to, the way I put it is the opinion story. And the idea of an opinion story is that instead of declaring your opinion about something, you tell the story of how you came to your opinion. And by opinion, I don't just mean some subjective view, I mean a conclusion that you really believe in. So when I'm talking about, say, my belief that the world should use more fossil fuels, not less. If I just say, hey, you know, I'm talking to an Uber driver, hey, the world needs to use a lot more fossil fuels. Here are the three reasons why. That can often, like many declarations or statements, breed, uh, breed resistance. But if I tell the story, and many, I'm sure you've heard me tell the story in different forms, but I tell the story, hey, I was really interested in, you know, I didn't know anything about energy. I learned that this is the industry that powers every other industry. I was really interested in what are the best forms of energy for the future. So I wanted to look at the pros and cons of each. And I was surprised when I, I concluded that fossil fuels uh, have far more pros than cons. And there are certain things they can do that not, no, no other form of energy can. And I actually became very pro fossil fuels. If I tell some version of that story, it, it goes over much better. And one reason is because it really respects the independence of the listener. I'm not declaring to them what they should believe. I'm not even claiming that I'm right. In a sense, I'm recognizing they don't know, I'm, uh, they don't know if I'm right or not, but I can tell them the story of the thought process and discovery process I went through 
And then if that sounds appealing to them, they can think, oh yeah, I might go through that process myself. So I'm curious, how are you thinking of opinion stories or as you, as you put it, give your logic, not your opinion in the context of your legal work? Right. So in lawyer language, we say uh, you have to show the jury as opposed to telling the jury. Mm -hmm. And so one teacher of lawyers put it this way, you're a lawyer, you're supposed to argue your case, but you don't argue your case. It's kind of a paradox of persuasion is the way he put it. One of the most important rules of advocacy, the more you argue, the harder you push, the more the judge and the jury resist what you have to say. That's his quote. Mm -hmm. the, re the reason is, um, and I think you identified this in, in, in your discussions about opinion stories, is no one likes to be told what to think especially Americans, they, people like their own ideas. And I've seen this over and over again, watching mock juries, juries that are created for research purposes. They create their own examples, they create their own analogies in deliberations, and they rarely repeat the arguments that these highly skilled advocates have given to them. They prefer their own ideas. So a recent example I'll give you is from a different case. We'll get off of the company X case. I spent the entire month of February 2020 in a jury trial in New Mexico. We were against some of the lawyers who were involved in the case that was made into the movie Aaron Brockovich. They were representing seven plaintiffs who were claiming serious personal injuries from living near an oil production facility. And from the beginning of the case, we suggested to the jury how to think about the issues, but not what to think about them. The opposing lawyers did the opposite. They told the jury what to think, and they claimed that the evidence pointed to only one conclusion in the case. We showed the jury the investigation that we had done and the conclusions we had reached, but we urged them to do their own investigation with the evidence we were presenting in the trial and to draw their own conclusions from it. And after a month of, of evidence and four and a half hours of closing argument, with the other side yelling and cajoling and lecturing to the jury most of the time about how they should, should decide the case, the jury deliberated remarkably for one hour after a full month of evidence and returned a verdict for our side. And in an interview after the trial, the jury foreman reported, particularly she, the jury did not like being told what to do. They were quite irritated with the opposing side's presentation. They felt their intelligence was not respected by the opposing lawyers. And of course, we had done just the opposite. We urged them to exercise their own judgment we told them what we had concluded based on our work, but that it was up to them to draw their own conclusions from the facts we, we laid out and presented to them. Uh, I would say one other thing, Alex, before back on context bridging, in a lot of these cases when we're representing energy companies, what people have in their head is what they've learned from the time they were in kindergarten. It becomes a really, really difficult challenge for lawyers representing energy companies in cases because we have to try to undo uh, you know, a, lifetime, a lifetime's worth of learning and knowledge and assumptions that, that some of these folks show up with in their minds. So one thing I think maybe implicit in what you just said, but you know, we've talked about before where you're, I think part of what you've become better and better at doing is sort of giving the perspective of how you as the attorney discovered the truth of the case. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. I, I, I try to stay away from, you know, there's a rule prohibiting attorneys giving their own opinions. So I have to do it more in terms of what my client has done. Mm -hmm. So in the case I mentioned in New Mexico, 
I, I just started at the very beginning. I said, look, this is when this issue was first presented to us. These are the things that we did. We interviewed these people. We looked at these documents. We studied these aerial photographs. We looked at government records. And as we, as we worked through the investigation, we realized that this is what occurred. And this is what had um, caused these issues. And this is what the problem was. And our conclusion based on that is that, you know, we're not responsible for that because what happened to these people was that a, a, a builder had decided to build a neighborhood in the middle of an oil field. And he had built some homes on top of old oil production facilities that, that were that, uh, in an active oil field. That, that really wasn't our client's responsibility or problem. And as we and we urged the jurors to, to sort of take their own uh, tour down that investigation path, um, and and uh, conclude what they thought was appropriate. This is what we had concluded after what we had done, and it gave us a way to present all the relevant facts without sort of telling them this is the conclusion they had to reach. This is the conclusion they had to come to. Yeah, I mean, of all the things I figured out with intellectual persuasion, I often find that that opinion stories are the most powerful. They're the ones that are easiest to learn and apply. And when I do talks about communication or better yet workshops about communication with organizations, one thing I really focus on is helping the, the people there develop their own opinion stories. And there are certain kinds of elements uh, of an opinion story. Maybe we can link to, I don't know if I have any online presentations about this, but I mean, one of them, just one, there are a bunch, actually, no, there are, there, um, there's a human flourishing project about opinion stories. So I can, I can uh, link to that. But for instance, one pitfall with opinion stories is sometimes people will say the, in effect, when I was your age, so they'll hear somebody with a different opinion and they'll say, oh, well, I used to believe that, but in effect, now I'm not dumb. And one thing with opinion stories is you don't refer to the other person. You just tell the story of how you think and then they can apply to themselves or not. But as soon as you say, oh yeah, I used to believe what you believed and now I don't, I mean, nobody, uh, nobody likes hearing that. And there are a bunch of others, so I'll make sure to link in the, um, in the show notes to that episode of the Human Flourishing Project. Uh, I have a couple of final thoughts on this, but Michael, before that, any, anything else you wanted to share about this issue of intellectual persuasion and then how it's applied to your work right. in energy law. Yeah, I, I would like to say one last thing. In, in this case, we just talked about in New Mexico, I, I had to argue for two and a half hours, um, two, two hours and 15 minutes actually is what each side was given. And um, I had, it was a heavy, heavy dose of your concept of opinion stories and arguing to 100. And after the trial, the judge called me up and she said to me, um, that was the the finest closing argument I've ever heard in any case. <laughs> and, and I, I was really taken a little bit taken aback, but um, I attribute much of that to, to these ideas, but I'll tell you one other thing as well. I didn't know this, but there were two other district judges who were sitting in for closing arguments as well. And they had made similar comments to uh, one of my witnesses who, who lives in that community who ran into the judges after the trial that it was really one of the best arguments they'd ever heard, uh, a, a, a summation they had ever heard from a lawyer in a case. Um, and so, you know, hat tip to you, Alex, for these great ideas which I employed in this trial and which had uh, obviously a powerful impact on the jury because we won, 
but also on the judges who are sort of unbiased on with respect to the issue of advocacy anyway. Well, that's, that's really cool to hear. I don't think I had actually heard that part of the story. I think I had heard that somebody approached you later, like a juror or something, but I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that it was, that it was the, the judge saying that. So my final thought on this is one perspective that's helped me a lot really since I was 18 years old. So almost, gosh, almost 22 years ago now, or 21 and a half years ago, is that for whatever reason, I've always had the idea that if I can't explain my point persuasively, there's something that I'm not doing right and there's something I can do better. And, and I think there's often the premise that, well, if I explained it and I tried my best and they didn't agree, then there's something wrong with them and I don't need to change. And my premise is, no, there must be a better way of explaining this. And I'm always on the lookout for better ways of explaining this. And, and any innovations I've come with, come up with have come from that mentality, from always looking for better ways to explain things. And I would encourage anyone in any realm of persuasion, if you're in, in the energy context, we can think of investor relations, we can think of legal issues, we can think of government issues, we can think of environmental type issues. Don't assume that you are already using anywhere near the best possible form of explanation. I sometimes think, well, in 500 years ago, 500 years from now, I'll bet they'll discover some, they'll have discovered some really good forms of explanation that we're clueless about now. So maybe let me try to push it at least a little bit in that direction. And so you want to think about just with any project you're working on, what, what can be done to explain this point better? Because every, every little bit you can get better at doing it, the, uh, that can lead to dramatic results in terms of success. And sometimes I use the analogy of a combination lock, one of those 10 cylinder bike locks, where, and the idea is you have to open all 10 cylinders for it to work. So you might, you might get eight of them right, and then you, you pull it open and it doesn't work. But then you unlock the ninth and the 10th, and then everything opens up. And sometimes explanation is like that. Sometimes just a, there's just a little thing missing, and then everything opens up once you fix that, that little thing. So I, I, I just really encourage people to, to assume there are much better ways of explaining things and then to try to innovate on that or to try to find people who can uh, help you. And obviously, we have one here. So Michael, in terms of uh, legal work, how do, how do people or anything else, how do people contact you? Well, michael.mazzoni at haynesboon.com is the email address. That's the best way. Okay. And Michael is standard spelling and Mazzoni is M-A-Z-Z. O N E. So it's it's Michael Mazzoni or Michael Dot Mazzoni. Michael Dot Mazzoni. Michael Dot Mazzoni at HainesBoon.com. And uh, Michael and I have done some work together. So if you're interested in using both of us, that's at least definitely an option. If you want to contact me about this or anything else, of course, it's Alex at AlexEpstein.com. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing these really cool experiences. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks again to Michael Mazzoni for joining me and for sharing his experiences. I hope they're valuable to all of you. And again, if any of you want to get in touch with Michael, you can email him at michael.mazzoni at haynesboon.com. And I should say Haynesboon is H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E.com. So thanks again, Michael. I really enjoyed that and I hope all of you did as well. 
Okay, it's almost time to end the whatever, however long this power hour is. Hope you've enjoyed the the large amount of content we've had lately. I plan on continuing that if people keep enjoying it. I just wanted to end on a note that's largely a thank you. <laughs> Last week, I introduced the 2020 Accelerator Program. I won't go into too much what it is, but the basic idea is that people, by contributing to our research and development efforts and the promotion of our ideas, so not you know my salary, not overhead, but but contributing to our new cutting edge projects, and in particular, the talented people outside the company or even inside the company besides me who make them possible, that has historically had a tremendous uh, accelerating effect on our ability to influence thinking on energy. And I talked about four big projects where it can help us out a ton, particularly in a very difficult financial year where for one thing, the speaking revenue that we usually rely on, a lot of that is gone because of, of the crisis. And there are also a lot of other difficulties in the markets that uh, make our business more difficult. So if you really believe in our mission and you want to see it, you want to see the right ideas about human flourishing and energy freedom spread, in particular this election year, definitely consider if, if, if it's not a sacrifice to you, if you can really do it and, and it makes sense for you, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate and learn all about it and hopefully contribute. I got a real outpouring of, of contributions in the last week and also a lot of really nice notes about why people contributed. So I thought to thank those people, but also to encourage some of you if you have similar sentiments uh, to contribute as well. I thought I would share some of them. And I'm not going to give the names of any of these because I perhaps foolishly didn't ask people for their names, but just thought I would share some of the ones that meant the most to me. So the first one, I want to support you because the work you're doing and have been doing, you and your staff are brilliant, incredibly valuable, give a voice to the importance of fossil fuels. I was laid off a month ago or I would have given more. Uh, that is, I mean, that really affected me emotionally because I know what it's like. I mean, I, I know what people are going through in terms of being laid off. And then in particular in the oil and gas industry, it's, it's such a difficult industry right now. And so for somebody to give any amount of money under those circumstances, that's a real uh, affirmation of what we're doing. And it, it means a lot. Then there's someone who made one contribution and then he wrote, I just made an additional contribution. My brother and his wife are fans of your work as well. And I know they would like to contribute but since they are symphony musicians, their livelihood has been impacted by the events related to the pandemic. So thank you so much for that. And yeah, I really feel for people like symphony musicians. That's, that's such a hard field to be in right now. The next one, you are a very good speaker. I have long felt it unfortunate that you have not been able to reach a larger audience. I think that you could be very effective at persuading open-minded people to change their opinions about quote-unquote climate change and ultimately bring rational thinking to the political debate. I was quite excited when I heard that you plan to hire a professional to help you get more speaking engagements. I think this person means primarily TV appearances, which is what I focused on. And I'm happy to help fund that, albeit at a very modest level. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. And Something I've thought about a lot over the years is how much do I want to be public versus how much do I want to be behind the scenes? And a lot of our business is helping companies behind the scenes. And I think that's a valuable thing to do. But I would really like to be more public and definitely by helping 
uh, pay for our R&D and helping pay for our promotion, it allows me to be a lot more public. So not just with this podcast, but with more TV appearances. And I think those will lead to more and more because I do think there are a lot of people who have not heard the human flourishing perspective on energy and environmental issues and who've not been really given rational thinking methods for thinking clearly about a whole bunch of issues pertaining to human life and human flourishing. And I found that when I've been able to reach broader audiences, like on the Dave Rubin show or the Adam Carolla show, it's really had a big impact. I'm really looking forward to reaching more people. The next one, I was motivated to contribute because I don't want your good work to be interrupted by the virus, this virus outbreak. Your appeal at the end of the last power hour made me think about how important it is to spread your pro-human flourishing message and how it's threatened by the current crisis. Thank you for that. A few years, this is the next one. A few years ago, I started rekindling my interest in economics and politics, especially with what's been going on with all the climate alarmism. Climate alarmism. Anyway, you've been a breath of fresh air for me. I've been successful financially in my career, so I'm happily in a position where I can contribute to things like this that I believe in. Thank you uh, for that, and I hope that there are more of you in that position. I really uh, appreciate that you find that you're, you know, some of the fruits of your success you want to use to help accelerate the spread of these ideas. The next one, I've contributed because I admire all your work. You're helping me learn how to think better and live a more fulfilling life. And for me, that's basically the best endorsement you could ever give me. Think better and live a more fulfilling life. Those are the two things I'm most interested in, in energy, but also outside of energy. Now, this is someone I met about 10 years ago. He says, I worked for, and it's a pipeline, I won't mention the pipeline, but for two and a half years, and it was the job I feel the most proud about in my career. I couldn't imagine a more important type of work, literally and figuratively powering people's lives. And yet, despite the tremendous good it provided, we were reviled and hated by everyone. Really bummed me out. Anyway, not only am I passionate about the work you guys are doing, I think, Alex, you have a remarkable ability to persuade, communicate effectively, and create change. So thanks for all the awesome work you and your team engage in. I'd be interested in a recurring $100 monthly subscription, too. It would be convenient to have something auto-set up. No worries if you can't set that up. I can try to remember to do so each, each month on my own. So I was really happy that people are asking for ways to contribute more, and in particular monthly. So I'll, I got a couple more like that, which I'll read, and then I'll, I'll tell you how we've resolved that. I've been wanting to contribute for a while now, but I didn't see a way to do it on your website. On your latest Power Hour podcast, you gave the details, so I immediately made a contribution. I really respect and appreciate everything that you're doing. You are one of the few people fighting to change the culture. I want to amplify the work you're doing as much as I can. To that end, I didn't see a way to set up a monthly recurring donation. That would make it easy for me to donate regularly. And then the final one is I like the accelerator idea. I think there may be, might be something missing though. What if a guy like me simply wants to write a small monthly check to the CIP, Center for Industrial Progress, because I really love what you're doing. How can I and the rest of the world do that? So thank you for, <coughs> excuse me. Thank you for asking for that option. That's really gratifying to us that, that you're thinking of that. So we did now put a monthly option up. If you just go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate, you can see all the different options, including all the different rewards that are available at least until April 7th, maybe longer, but uh, at least until April 7th. 
where you can, and for some of you it might be, you can get a virtual speech now at a big discount. You can get, you can pre-order a future speech now at a big discount, or you can get things like a signed copy of the moral case for fossil fuels, or if you want, it can be a signed copy of the new version of moral case for fossil fuels when it comes out next year. So once again, industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. And thanks for all the notes from people who contributed. Uh, that is you know, just as meaningful to us as the contribution itself. Okay, that is it for this week's Power Hour. It is really dark here now in Southern California. Hopefully I don't look too weird on this screen. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com to get on our mailing list. You can go to alexepsteinlist.com and then you will get the Wednesday newsletter along with the free 30-part energy clarity course, which gives you one quick email every week that summarizes a key issue in energy. So make sure to get that for yourself and to share it with others. If you are interested in any kind of speaking, probably virtual speaking right now or consulting, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. And once again, if you want to contribute to accelerate our progress, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Lots is happening. Glad we can be on top of it. Thanks for everybody's support financially, morally, intellectually, and in every other respect. I'll be back next week with some more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.